<laughs> hey guys. I just got back from this really weird dinner. There was a dude who was like glittering gold. A real big dude with a chariot and, and some girl crying about her issues. So I just want to say that tonight there is going to be total language that is not suitable for audiences. In your ears be advised. <laughs> Why is the sparkly man coming closer to me with knives? Anyway, it, we're totally spoil things. Like, fate zero and shit. Because I'm drunk. <laughs> so, if you, like, haven't watched fate zero, you should totally go watch fate zero first. We could totally spoil other things. Like, especially Glittery Guy. Like, he really thinks that, like, everything belongs to him, including me, which is really weird because I've never met you, glittering guy. And, like, finally, just remember, anything we assholes say tonight is totally us. It doesn't reflect any adult tag as a whole. Now, excuse me, <laughs> I'm gonna go back to the beer because Big Guy brought the good shit tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Why is everything melting and on fire? Oh no, am I a hot crab What? Welcome to Dub Talk, where a group of heroic spirits once again converge to do battle and talk about English dubs for anime. I'm Archer Jet, and I'm joined tonight by Berserker Megan. One of us, one of the four of us here tonight is naked drinking wine as we record. Which one of us is it? You'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Caster Roots. Fill, 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 seven times fill. And Lancer Andy. Hey yo, what's good everybody? I mean, oh wait, hang on. <clears throat> Ladies, how you doing? <clears throat> so I cannot think of any two more unsexy phrases than Lancer Andy. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you like how do you like it when I thrust my lance? <laughs> no! No. Which one? The one that penetrates any armor? Or the one that damages my right hand? Whatever gets the job done. Whatever gets the job done. And let's be real, whether it penetrates your armor or whether it works your, your left hand, you know, you gotta know how to work it yourself. Work that shaft, Lancer Randy. Yeah. Okay, uh, so in case you couldn't tell, we're reuniting to talk about some more fate. Yep, and this time though, we're turning the clock back to the year, to the old year of 2011, because apparently any anime has had the last three years is ancient according to young people nowadays. Hey kids, hey, let's kids. watch that old anime, Sword Art Online! 
god! Get off my lawn! I'm trying to watch the goddamn current lagging! God that, <laughs> god, that reminds me of when I uh, I saw an image and it's like, I, I remember playing Minecraft during my childhood. It's like, oh god damn it. I'm old. Meanwhile, yeah. Grandpa Grandpa Hardy in the ground, uh, six feet under, rest his soul. His uh, his eternal ghost is watching that ancient ancient show, Gunsmith Cats. Bless <laughs> uh, Bless his soul. Okay, um, so we're here to talk about the dub to the much celebrated prequel of Fate Stay Night, Fate Zero. Uh, for the twelve of you who haven't seen Fate Zero by this point, I'm not one of them anymore. Ow. Okay. Jeez. <laughs> uh, Fate Zero tells the story of a Holy Grail War occurring in the city of Fumiti. As seven magicians each summon a warrior of legend known as a heroic spirit in order to do battle in an attempt to claim the Holy Grail and have their deepest desire granted. One of these mages is a man known as Kiritsuko Emiya who desires to save the world. But is it truly possible to save all of mankind? And, uh, well, yeah, that's basically the gist of it. I could have come up with a better description. The answer... The answer... The answer to the, the answer may surprise you. No, no, it cannot. Yeah. Grails hate him. What does Kiritsukuemiya do to make the Grails hate him? Find out by clicking this clickhole article. God damn it. Yep. The series uh, also ends with a man sitting naked on rubble. I'm pretty sure his asshole is very, very mad at him for getting dust up there. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, as always, we will start things off with our ADR director and our scriptwriter. Fortunately for tonight, they happen to be one and the same. And both are handled by one Tony Oliver, who, in addition to directing pretty much every Anaphrax-produced Fate series at this point, that man has infinite job security. <laughs> look, look, Fate's not getting any less popular, let's be real. Or here. horny. Or that horny. Fake money, that fake grand order money. God damn it. <laughs> Show me the money! Here comes the money! Just, and I just imagine that Tony Oliver just sits in an office where, like, Saber and and Koo just, like, make it rain on Tony Oliver as he wears a lupin, <laughs> as he wears a lupin coat. <laughs> <laughs> just, ah, oh, yes, bitch! Shower me in that fate money! Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, um, so in addition to the Fate dubs, he has also worked on such dubs as Don Gutsuo, The Count of Monte Crisco, Gargante on the Virgilous Planet, Charlotte, and Kaon. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll be fleeing the country before Megan and Amy come for me. Ah. <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> I, wait, what? I'm not a big fan of Charlotte. Oh, I mean... I mean, Kaon is just. You know what? Fuck you, Sentai. Fuck you. Why are you releasing the nice limited edition box set of my one of my most hated shows on my birthday? I thought we were friends. They're good music girls, Megan. And they're good psychic girls, Andrew. No, they're not. No, they're not. Come on. What has JC Staff let you down before? It's not even JC Staff. It's PA Works. What has PA Works ever let you down? It's called Charlotte. <laughs> okay, now we're going we're going on a major tangent, and I'm getting very disappointed. Yeah, okay, would you start us off there, Andy? Okay, so... I keep calling him Andy, and I keep giggling. 
Okay, so, uh, in regards to the dub and the script, the dub is interesting for Fate Zero. It's, there's a lot of people who are less prevalent in anime nowadays, because this was from a couple of years ago. By the way, this is a dub talk classics, in case the video title wasn't clear enough. Um, this is interesting, because there's a lot of... There is a- this is a very exposition-heavy show, and very prevalent in regards to, like, ideologies, thought processes, suffering, drama, and the like. And it's really, really interesting to see how the dialogue is pulled off. I think it's actually really interesting, poignant script, and all the stuff that was done in English works pretty well, even all the magic mumbo-jumbo. And the dialogue. This is a show written by Gen Urubuchi, by the way, which you may may have figured Blink out. Blink twice if you're okay, Gen. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need a hot man? <laughs> he, he's gonna be working on. He's been working on puppets for a while. I think he's doing okay. They're good puppets, Andrew. Okay. Um, the script is pretty good. As for a lot of performances. There's a couple in here where I could be like, oh, they're they're okay, or they're alright. But a lot of the cast in this, I find pretty stellar. Like, there's a couple of performances that really put themselves out. A lot of the drama, the intricacies, the... the just so many of these people, I believe, are real people, or they are real personalities. And it was really interesting to see how they bounce off one another, and... Some of the action dialogue and the freak-out cry despair moments. There's a lot of different sides to a lot of different actors. And all in all, I'm pretty impressed that, honestly, I feel like this dub still holds up really well, all things considered. And I'm pretty impressed. Good job, Tony. I look forward to covering your next Fate-related work. Because we probably will. We're I mean, in, we're in the, we're... two more with another two on the way. We're not trapped in here with it. No, I'm not. We're it's not trapped in here with. It. I'm not trapped in here with you. You're trapped in here with me. No, here's the thing. Fate's not trapped with us. We're trapped with fate, guys. <laughs> also, I discovered how many times they managed to escape fate very often in the script on the second thing. I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. Thank you, Bane. Sips wine. Uh, so, Megan, after you're done uh, getting a taste of your good old wine, would you like to tell us what you thought? That, uh, for one, all three of you owe me at least one free shot to your nuts. Um, Jesus fair. Christ. Y'all fair. <laughs> yes. Okay, full disclosure. I have never watched... Like, the only Fate show I've actually legitimately sat the whole way through was Apocrypha. We weren't kidding. We weren't kidding. I had really... No, like, we weren't kidding that I had never actually watched a Fate show all the way through until that point. They did not give me any warning about any of the stuff that happens within the first six or so episodes of this show, which are not limited to some of the following. Child murder, child murder, child abuse, uh, a... a a dungeon full of bu a dungeon full of worms, child abuse, murder, and and just I wanted to kill them all. In my defense, uh, 
I watch Shiki blind. You get out of this fine. Good. I also watch Shiki blind. Too bad he's already taken that excuse. <laughs> Dang it. All right. So. You know what? Wait, no. Uh, okay, okay, wait. No, okay, no, wait, no, wait, no, wait, no, wait, no. Jet gets that excuse. Andrew doesn't get it. Andrew gets kicked in the balls twice. I forgot some of the stuff that happens. You know what? I and I don't want to hit my boyfriend, so Andrew gets hit in the balls three times. Um, I watched the dramatical murder OVA. I'm already oh, doing- Oh, thank you, honey! Oh, God. You're the best! Uh, anyway, so, uh, so I have no experience with the Japanese of this at all, and I know that's really bad for a show that's critiquing dubs, uh, but I will say that I was really floored by a lot of the cast and a lot of the dramatic tension that Tony brings out in the writing. There is one performance in the entire show that I think is just not at the level of everybody else. And it's not a bad performance. It's just not what it needed to be at with the levels of everybody else in the show. Like, as as much as there's a lot of really good drama and really good tension, the show also at one point has a air battle between a possessed F like F-15 fighter jet and a mystical flying beetle chariot. Fate is interesting and likes to experiment with some of its Fate? battles. There was fucking zombie vampires and a corpse full of bees. Zombie vampires, which I think are technically ghouls. There's a lot of weird stuff in there. Corpse, also, corpse full of corpse full of bees is what did it for me. It was what. Also, a Lovecraftian just... and glub glub monster. Ooh. <laughs> uh, Why'd you have to describe it as a glub glub monster? That's pretty on par. Okay. Uh. You okay? <laughs> <Megan>? <laughs> I'm sorry. Come, come, mother. Okay, uh, baby Root should go while Megan's recovering. Wait, are you are you done, Megan? <laughs> I have to be. I can't. Please. Okay, okay. Okay, get him back in the zone. Get him back in the zone. This is the club club. She said, "Club club." He says as he makes love to me. It's the only thing I think of is that picture of Tony Stark with the giant gold. This this may be the fastest we've gone. Okay. 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 Tony Oliver did a really great job directing this. I would say between. Oh god, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> Take a breath. Take a breath. I'm like snotting out my nose! <laughs> <laughs> Cause, like, you can cut this all out. When Hurt says glob glob, the only thing I think of is the devil man crying incident. We're not even 15 minutes into this. Okay, we're 20, not even 20 minutes into this recording. This is this is a new Jesus record. Jesus fucking Christ. That's not even the worst joke I've got. Oh, Lord. Okay. Oh, God, time in. No, so Tony Oliver did a really good job. I'm crying. <laughs> did a really good job bringing up the dramatic tension. And I, I do really want to commend the writing on Fate Zero. Um that the show, if I'm right, the show itself takes place, like, in actual show, like, in 1995, right? I yeah. Th yeah. Yeah. I think it's, like, 96-ish. 
mid-90s. So I do want to commend him that he kept the script, at least what I'm going to assume is pretty faithful, but he also kept it faithful to the time of when the show took place. Like, there was no slang from, like, the early 2010s littered in here. Everything came off as, like, this is some stupid shit from the 90s. Um, I mean, Iskandar threatens to fight Bill Clinton. Which is a beautiful <laughs> moment. And Bill Clinton placed Bill Clinton's like noble a, Bill Clinton's like noble phantasm Bill Clinton's noble phantasm is playing the saxophone. Uh, but that being said, I think I I really liked it. There's one performance that really just it it's not purveying the character maybe to what I think that the character is doing, but obviously it's still a really good performance. Uh, but yeah, Roots, go ahead. I fucking I can't believe I fucking date you. I I agreed to date you. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, oh, monster, Jesus Christ! I'm sorry. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're not at all. You're not all right. sorry. All right. <laughs> getting in the zone. Getting in the zone. Um, I I thought the casting for Fate Zero was really great. The direction was pretty solid. I do have a few nitpicks here and there about the scripts and kind of the pace of the dialogue, but considering though those issues are also kind of prevalent in the Japanese version, like I can't fault the dub itself. It, it's just one of those shows where the dialogue just kind of feels a little stilted. I'd also argue that is in itself an issue with the show with outside right. of the English language too, it was always going to be an issue because there. Here's the here's the if I can interject for a second. Here's yeah. an issue for better or for worse with Ufotable as a studio is that everything looks gorgeous and on model almost the entire time. Right. The problem is to make everything look gorgeous and on model almost all the time. You kind of need to have a lot of scenes that are stationary. And yep. which works for a show like Fate Zero, which is very dialogue intensive and heavy anyways. Sometimes they can hide it easily, like the Dinner of Kings. But sometimes it's just, they are just walking around and talking ideologies or something. The Oh, oh man, that, that, like, that literally reminds me of, like, the first scene with, yeah. like, the five, play, like the, he's literally just walking around the room several times. The five minutes, <laughs> nearly five minutes of just Tokuyomi and Kisei Kotomine circling around Kirei. <laughs> no, 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 no. Kirei is the one in the middle. His father is the one that's circling around him with Tokuyomi. Oh, wait, his name is Kisei? I think it's Kisei. It's either Kisei or Risei. This is gonna bug me. It's, I'm pretty sure it's Risei. Okay, Risei. Like, it's like that fucking song from the beginning of The Lion King 2. They're just, like, talking about him. That's my lullaby. As they, like, just run, like, run around him in a circle. <laughs> it's, it's basically the lamest rendition of the morning report. Yeah. Uh, Okay, uh, so All right, five points for actually knowing what that song is. Okay, do you have anything else to say? Um, but in any case, um, like, other than some minor dialogue pacing issues, like, everything was just solid top to bottom. I can't actually find a performance in the show I actually strongly disliked, so, I mean, that's 
in and of itself a feat, especially considering this is like a 2013-ish dub. Like, it, it was like it was like 2012, 2012, yeah. 2013. Still almost five to six years. Right. Roots. When did you buy the first set? Oh, good point. Thank you for bringing that up. I actually bought this blind. You madman. Like I. I, I'd yell at him, but I've done the same things for, like, other shows. Like, they're, half of my shelf is blind-bought shit. Like, I bought both of the sets at once, too. What the fuck, honey? Man, like, the life of a DVD collector is a tragic and strange one. It's, yeah, it, it's still on my shelf. It I pull it out every once in a while. Just to look at it. Just to look at it. Occasionally take a picture of it in, like, nice lighting. <laughs> but it, uh, in any case, um, yeah, I, I really like the direction and the writing on the dub. There we go. Okay. Um, Fate Zero under the under the cover. <laughs> dang it. <laughs> okay, um, so it's always kind of interesting talking about Tony Oliver because my opinion of him as a director has really changed a lot over the years. Uh, like Christopher Bevin, he's gone from someone who I was kind of like, eh, um, in the beginning to someone who I feel is generally reliable. And I feel like it mostly has to do with how his style has kind of evolved. Uh, these days he's got, like, pretty good at doing high-energy stuff, like Star Wars Crusaders or Hunter x Hunter or just, like, better Jonin stuff. Uh, but a lot of, it, uh, but a lot of his older does have a very, like, kind of stage theatery tone to them. And, uh, that was something he actually aimed for by his own ambition. Um, as someone who kind of prefers a more naturalistic tone when it comes to voice acting, uh, that approach was often kind of a little bit hit or miss for me. Uh, but Fainzer was definitely a case for that mostly worked in his favor, because when you get right down to it, Fainzer is pretty much the equivalent of watching a Shakespearean play, but in anime form. <laughs> Except for one character's entire arc can just be described as gay spring awakening. You I'm know, gonna... <laughs> Jet, I'm kind of glad you brought that up, because that actually kind of explains the sort of, the the strange pacing of the dialogue. It Everything is like a like sonnet, almost, you'd think. Yeah. Yeah. That actually kind of yeah. changes the way I see that. <laughs> yeah, so the show itself features an ensemble of characters that are like, that feel like they're constantly competing for stage presence. And that's highly reflected, like, the overall tone of the dub, where it feels the actors are just, like, constantly vying for your attention. And, uh, this approach works better with some performances than with others, but it all comes together for a really solid production. Uh, I don't have as much to say about the script, but it certainly could have been easy to make a Robuchi's pro work in English. Uh, but Tony Oliver certainly pulls it off pretty effectively, and it matches the tone of his direction very well. Um, all in all, this isn't one of my this isn't my favorite of his fate does because I think he's gotten more or less spread on each one of them. Uh, but it's definitely solid, and I can understand why this dub is so well regarded in its heyday. And honestly, it's I still feel it holds up. Yeah. Yeah. No. Like it was. It was. It was really actually like I actually liked it a little bit more than Apocrypha. So. <laughs> Not, okay. not, not, like, I like the show better, but I also just, I enjoy the dub a little bit more. Though I will say one thing. I would much rather, as a director, have to pull apart Urobochi's writing than to have to pull apart, like, a Nisi Onsen show. Oh, oh that's God. No, nobody's even tried yet. Unless... Uh, Junie Tyson. Does that uh, count? 
Yes! I guess that counts. Oh, wait, no, Madaka Box, okay. Uh, 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 well, Madaka Box never got to, like, the really niche ocean stuff of that manga, because the anime only covered, like, maybe one or two arcs. Thanks, but Gynex! But no, Junie Tyson, Junie Tyson's count. Junie Tyson counts. Fair, fair, fair. Okay. Okay, and uh, with that, it's time to move on to our first section. We're gonna call this- Fuck uh, these characters! We're gonna call this Team Edgelord. Yep, yeah, uh, so first on our list, we have our caster, Gil Zerez, his master, Uriu Ryanosuke, who is a serial killer that targets children, and our assassin, Hassan Sama, because I really couldn't find anywhere else to put him. Sorry. Uh, so before we get to who plays these three, uh, Roots and Edgar are going to give us a little bit of history on these servants. Uh, so Root... I'll oh, go first. Gonna... Oh, you want to go with Roots first? Uh, it doesn't really matter. Honestly, uh, Asan's gonna be quick simply because yeah. of the fact that, like, it's very, very weird to talk about Asan. It's. Yeah, I've got, like, a paragraph, so if you wanna go first. Okay, so Asan is a very strange character to talk about just because Hassan seems to be both, like, the leader of a group as well as also the group itself. Because Hassan Isabad is also is the leader of a group of Nizari is Isamalites and the founder of an order known as the Assassins, who in the, in Fate are assassins. It's strange to talk about how this relates to the character in Fate because it seems like, in part, it is both the group and the members of the organization of Hassan, as well as individual members but there also could be parts of his personality this one was very strange to try and figure out especially in regards to fate lore because there's different versions of this version of assassin sometimes it's individual sometimes in the groups but in regards to fate zero this is specifically about the group of assassins which are all kind of the servant is basically having like a giant package deal together Okay, uh, Roots? Um, so the caster in Fate Zero is Gilderai. In life, he was a comrade in arms with uh, Joan of Arc in the 15th century. Uh, the two were among many military leaders who fought the British at the, uh, at the Siege of Orleans. After returning, he retired from the military and um, sort of decided to dabble in the occult. Um, and among this... Among this dabbling in the occult, um, he decided to murder children. As you do. As you do. It's it's like all the um, satanic panic movies of the of the eighties. You draw you draw a witch's circle once, and then you murder in children. Look, I, you take a look at the Necronomicon once, and you decide, hey, let's kill children. Necronomicon, not even once. Not even once. <laughs> um, now, historical accounts of Gilderay's murder spree vary from person to person. Um, it's been said that he's killed somewhere between 80 and 600 children. Ooh. Jesus Christ! Okay, so oh, not wow. so not far off. And uh, he ultimately confessed to his crimes, where he was executed by hanging and burning. Boy. As they threw the book at him. 
Man, they they there was not enough books in the world. <laughs> so in terms of fate lore, um, Gilderai was also very much in love with Joan of Arc. And his motivations throughout the course of Fate Zero are him basically attempting to use the occult alchemy and and magic he learned in life to attempt to resurrect her. He also was kind of, um, when Fate Zero happens, he mistakes Saber as Joan of Arc, which... Okay, right. calm down, Pat, from, uh... Well, that's best, super best friends. Okay. Place. Okay. Super best friend. Is this? Yeah. Is that Joan of Arc? Okay. Let me explain that. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. Fate from Super uh, Super Best Friends Play did a video because there is a Fate fighting game based off the Fate Stay Night game, and the funniest thing is when they first show Saber, Pat says, "Is that Joan of Arc?" And I immediately thought of I immediately thought. Of Cas is this a pigeon? I immediately thought of Caster doing is this Joan of Arc, which when you think about it, when you think Somebody about did it, did the Photoshop too? Oh, I hang on, hang on, I got the Photoshop too, but yeah. Uh, point being, he mistakes uh, Saber as Joan of Arc, which becomes a big plot point. Before it turns out, basically, this is before the Saber face became a meme. By the way. Yeah. Saber yeah, says he, he gets mad about it when he finally puts two and two together and like his noble phantasm and glub glub. No glub glub, please, Jet. Who who plays them? <laughs> okay, so playing Gilderays, we have one Dan Warren, who you would know as who you would know as Bianca Yakuski from Bleach. Wait, Igor, what? Uh, Bianca Yakuski from Bleach. Be uh, bring his older brother. Oh no, I know who that is, but what? Yeah! Yeah, okay, uh, Igor from Persona 3 and Persona 4, and Rudolf von Stroheim from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, because Germany has the greatest medical science in the world! What a varied... <laughs> wow, yeah. Okay, I forgot he was Igor, but that makes a lot of fucking sense. Yeah. Uh, Ryanosuke is played by one Johnny Agamash, who you would know as Vastus MP to Dragon, Rented Thurston in Eureka 7, Kiba from Wolf's Raid, and a bajillion of other things because this guy has been in practically everything. Let's also talk about the fact that he is Toru Adachi from Persona 4 for no reason at all. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, playing Assassin, we actually have several actors, including Patrick Seitz, Karen Strassman, and Vic Mignotta. Because they're uh, a collective. Okay. Yeah, uh, Patrick Seitz, you would know as for such roles as Dio Brando from Jojo's Bizarre Roll to Walla! And Ubo Gid from Hunter x Hunter, Vic Mignotta, you would know for such work as Broly from the Dragon Ball franchise, and Edward Owl from Fullmetal Alchemist. So, um, Andrew, would you like this out as well? Okay, the Assassins I'll be quick about because it's basically you hear Patrick and Karen talk a couple of times and they're cool, edgy, and menacing. And that's sort of what they got going for them. The biggest mistake they make is laughing at Ryder and denying his invitation for a drink because they get bodied hard. You never yeah. turn down a big guy in his booze. You never turn him down. Never, ever. Now, uh, Ryodosuke is really interesting because, like I said, he sounds exactly like Adachi. And 
I'm just gonna put a little disclaimer right here. This part is spoilers for Persona 4. Toru Adachi and Ryunosuke Uryu may as well be the goddamn same character. The only difference being that Ryunosuke is like the evolution of Toru Adachi. Because Toru Adachi's whole thing is, I'm bored, I hate society, let's kill women. Now, Ryunosuke's whole deal is, I'm bored, I hate society, let's kill children. And women! Does he kill women? Yeah, he yes. kills, like, the first... Everything. Like, he kills the family of the first kid when he summons uh, Gilderai. Okay, he kills everybody, but he has a very strong preference for children. Well, my thing is, does he have a strong preference for children himself, or does he have a strong preference for children because Caster asks him to? I do, That's a good question. Yeah, that is really hard That's to That's a really good question. I didn't Probably think of that. a little bit of both, I would want to say. But, okay. But here's something I really want to talk about that I picked up on my rewatch that's fascinating to me. Ryunosuke talks with the mannerisms of a child, which is actually kind of fascinating and makes him more believable as a fucked up serial killer. Ooh. Is that he himself feels much more stilted and childish because he's always talking about how everything is going on is going to be so cool or he's talking in very simple words he's not like he's not he he never curses he never really curses or swears or anything like that he's just like oh man that sucks or ah that hurts or something like that it's like or that's gonna be so cool this is gonna be so awesome i love it he speaks like a child a stilted child which is actually a lot more unnerving for it it makes him much more authentic and i think that's actually pretty impressive um as for dan warren dude he is so goddamn awkward and strange and creepy he's so creepy everything about his lines the way he delivers them makes me like want to rip my skin off it's like i feel like very uncomfortable and it's amazing when he does the freakouts, when he does the dramatic things and when he does that s really interesting speech in regards to like sacrificing people and what is what god wants which we'll discuss more i think megan will talk more about that but all i can say is dan warren does a stellar job at making gilderai aka caster super creepy weird and unnerving and i'm very impressed and as well as just the fact that johnny himself sounds like a stilted child serial killer and he's so creepy and strange and i really respect that okay megan uh, I'll be really quick about Assassin. They didn't really stand out to me, just like Assassin in the show. I could definitely tell Patrick and Karen. I really couldn't tell Vic at all. It's not a bad performance. It's just what it needs to be. They are a collective. Um, they are for the greater good of Kyrie Kotomine. Kotomine. Yeah, yeah, and also be don't ever deny Ryder his drink, you fuckbags. Um... Oh boy, Caster and Uryu. Um, I wanna, I, I wanna spend a little bit more time on, uh, Uryu actually. Uh, Dan Warren is Caster. I'm not super, super familiar with him, outside of like Bleach, but it's been a while, and I would like to purge the memory of Bleach from my head. Um, uh, what's Bleach? But exactly, 
You use you it to say whiten I your clothes. You could say I possibly bleached it from my memories. Uh, nah, fuck bleach. Uh, was... Please continue. <laughs> so when Jet said wait, he was he was uh, older older asshole. It's also be ha ha ha. It's really funny because Ichigo and Byakuya are a team. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> God. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> no offense, Uryu kind of looks like Ichigo if Ichigo like fell upon like hard cracky times. Um, I'm no caster. I'm mad that you brought this to my attention. That's that's a really no, good connection. I know, I know, yeah, man. It also gets worse if you consider it's like the beat the persona four protagonist or the persona or Adachi and Igor team up to commit murder. Yeah, <laughs> man. <laughs> God. But, uh, no, one of the things... I'm sorry. That one, this is... One of the things I really liked about Caster was that he had this sense of, like, awkward sexual predator about him. Like, like I don't know how to not describe him as other than somebody who deserves to be on a neighborhood watch list. That's fair. Yeah, man. All like, things considered... <laughs> Like, I'm not gonna lie, I looked into some information last night. Apparently, like, when Waver and Ryder find the pile, it's so much worse than what they would- that they applied on television. Like, they actually had to tone it down for TV. Yeah, there's a couple- there's a couple things that had to be toned down like, from light novel to TV. people were made- like, no, like, children and people were made into furniture while still being alive. Ooh, uh, <laughs> oh... Booch, buddy, are you okay? Wow. Just, uh, I've got my little Timmy armchair. <laughs> Please, let's, let us not. I'm not gonna make any jokes about that. But, uh, one of the, one of the scenes I think that really sold me on Caster being an absolute terror is when... They're in the the ear the uh the Einsberg Woods in Fuyuki, and he's got the little kids, and he's like, "No, we're gonna all play hide and seek." And you're like, "No, no the fuck we ain't." No, <laughs> the run, hell kids, we are. Run, <laughs> run. And then he just grabs one and squeezes that kid's head like it's a ripe melon, and then yeah. throws him. And I was just like. I think that's the point where I was a little like, fuck all you guys in the chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like, fair. Man, 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 I, man, I think to, okay, to be fair, like, it's pretty obvious from his first scene where he's bad news. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, no, like he likes like, his like, tentacle like, maul as a child. No, 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 the worst thing is that at first it seems like he's reassuring the child, like he's going to let him go. The child literally almost makes it out. And then, and then just... Oh, it's, blub, blub, it's blub, blub, blub. so dirty. It's... Glub, 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 glub. Um... But there's just this, there's just this weird sense of like, he sounds like such a nice, slightly off drunk uncle that you never want to see again in your life. Mm. And then there's child, eternal child Uryu, who, by the way, I love his Johnny's performance when Uryu dies. Yeah. Mm. Where he's like, oh, I wanted to see my own guts this whole time. And he's just like having like a little it's like a little kid seeing himself scrape his knee for the first time oh god yeah except for he's literally just bleeding out and then he gets shot in the head 
Mm. And and I think what really sells it is just the blood curdling scream of some random Walla girl right next to him, where it's like, ah! <laughs> but just also be that weird conversation about God. Yeah, man, they went. This yeah, show goes that places. Was just, it, it was so weird to hear from Warren's perspective a guy who goes. From one end of the spectrum thinking about God to the fucking other in about five minutes. I think it's just... And how, I th- and how Uryu is just like... You know how like when little kids make up shit? Mm-hmm. Like just how passionate and like little kid fervor Johnny Bosch brings to this? Which is so weird because it's Johnny Bosch! That's yeah. what makes it so and, interesting to me. Interesting. And like... Like he does, he does have a little kid voice. Like we're gonna get to hear it in uh, high speed, but Renten, I think, is a little kid voice for Johnny Bosch. It's yep. that spirit of Renten in the body of a grown man who is also a serial killer. Yeah, and it's fucking wild. <laughs> and like literally, if it, it, I feel like. In any other show, like, if these two characters were villains, they would be, like, the standout performance in the show. And they're not even, but they're not even hot they're, shit. They're not even, yeah, they're, like, not even hot shit in this they're show. They're, like, the first core antagonists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like they, they are literally the extras. Yeah, <laughs> and their performances are that good. Like, in any other show, like, like legitimately, they would be, like, two of the big standouts in a lesser production. But in here, they're just literally just another cog in the machine. And that's terrifying. Yeah. I, I think that yeah. it's the difference is that they are less grandiose because they are uncontrollable chaos. Therefore, they are seen as lesser. It's the ones that work to control it that are scarier. <laughs> More of that yes, to come. Yeah, like, no, they're absolutely terrifying, but they are, like, some of the... They do some pretty awful things, but in the grand scheme of things... Holy shit, show. Again, buddy, blink twice if you need help. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm gonna keep assessing... Like, like Megan, I'm gonna keep assessing kind of short. Um, like, they... They're not really designed to stand out, like, at all. So, I really don't have much to say about Patrick, Karen, or Vic. They're they're there. They take their orders, and then they get taken out one by one. Like, that's pretty much the They character. just kind of get unceremoniously axed. Like, they're, they're all, like, bodied. And mm-hmm. they, that ends up being motivation for later on, but... Yeah, like they—they're good. Don't get me wrong, but they—they they just don't have much of a role to play in the. Uh, they are there to lurk in the shadows and basically give Kotomine stalking ammo. Right. Oh boy, Caster. Like I—I just—I just love how Dan Warren just kind of hams it, just hams it to eleven. Like, every ounce of scenery that he he's next to is just... It all has, like, bite marks on it. Like, More he's... 
he is just the most unrepentant bastard. Like, and it it feels like Darren Warren had a lot of fun with the role. All things considered. I mean, if you're if you're gonna play like a serial child murderer, you might as well have a good time with it. Like you know what I mean? I have never been a serial child murderer, so I would not know. <laughs> I would hope not. Uh, otherwise, uh, we would have to end this episode very early. Yep. I'm not yeah, a child murderer, I'm sorry, but I play uh, one on TV. Roots, if you were an actual, for real serial child murderer, I would actually kill you. That's yeah. fair. Yeah, that's reasonable. There would be no mercy. There would be no mercy. But, but no. Uh, first of all, one, I would actually probably cut off your dick first. <laughs> and then kill the rest of you. But he, like, Dan Warren just plays this with such a charisma and vigor that just makes Gilderoy just even scarier than he has any right to be. And, like, especially when he figures out that, like, Saber is not Joan of Arc and he freaks out. Like, that is just, ugh. <laughs> He is a lanky, very tall, very uncomfortable man with gecko eyes, and God, he's scared. Yeah, what the fuck is up with this design? Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, like, it, it's actually kind of interesting, because in Apocrypha, like, they show him normal. Yeah, yeah he has, like, a standard design there. Because, look, here's the thing. When you go crazy, you don't always look crazy. Like, he looked like a person at one point. Just, I wonder if... Ryanosuke's like because I don't think he actually read the spell correct that's a good point and I'm wondering if it's because he read the spell all wonky that he turned out wonky ooh that's possible yes <laughs> and yeah damn it you did damn it you cooked you cooked your brownies for 10 minutes too long <laughs> I mean I'll eat it but it's burnt that that sounds funny. That sounds like honey. something Caster would say. Look, I'll eat it, but it's burnt. Honey, I know we cooked a whole fish with its eyes, but why are they looking in two different directions? God damn it! Speaking of Rianosuke, what did you think of Rianosuke? Yeah, can I just say that I like, I really love Johnny Young Bosch playing villains. Mm. Like singular villain. Well, you know he's. Whenever I mean, I Johnny gets in, to be a bad boy, basically. I mean, I guess in Dorara he was more of an asshole than a villain, but... He's a big asshole in that. But I, I just... <laughs> like, I like that so much, because you get to see, like, little nuances in his performance that you don't get to normally. And, and especially, like... I, I didn't even think of it when I was rewatching it, but when Andrew brought up that he sort of acts like a child, like that that just makes him even like even eerier. And then he like his whole death scene too. It's just yeah, like Johnny Young Bosch is a really good actor, and like I do kind of wish he gets to play that sort of villainous character more often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so yeah, that that's that's my piece. Okay. Alright, so I don't have much to say about assassin or the assassins as it were. 
Uh, but Vic, Patrick, and Karen all more or less did what they needed to do. And they didn't really distract from anything else that was going on, which uh, which mostly speaks to how well they did, because sometimes working well in the background is important too, and sometimes that's what you have to do, and they were really good at that. And the assassin is literally supposed to be in the background, so that works out. Um, as for Caster, uh, back when I watched this dub in 2012, I was only really familiar with Dan Ward for two things. One was Biafia, where because I watched Bleach, the Bleach dub kind of on and off back then, and Igor. And despite how shady Igor might look, Igor himself is a very, very, very nice man. He goes out of his he goes out of his way to save the world on several occasions. Do not shame Igor. <laughs> I mean, he does. Igor also has a bitch and ride. Cruising <laughs> okay. around in my automobile. <laughs> he does. Um, so needless to say, seeing Dan Ward go full on evil head was a bit of a shock. I certainly can't complain though, because he practically chooses serious caster. Like pretty much every time he speaks, he more or less steals the show. And he offers a delightful mix of full quality ham and also this very just utterly vile tone beneath it all. Because let's face it, Caster is a monster, and I and I very much appreciate that the show does not mince words about mince words about that or try to make him well. I guess not sympathetic, but. You know, just try to portray him as anything less than the monster he actually is. Like, so he, that was very much a they're, they're not pretending he's not a piece of shit, basically. <laughs> as an antagonist, he's more of a force of nature than, like, something you're supposed to at least identify on some level with. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> glub, glub. <laughs> yep. Okay, and uh, it's a very similar deal with uh, Johnny on Monsterio. He delivers a fine mix of villainy in him. And um, like, and I do appreciate that um, you guys brought up the whole like sounds like a child thing because I didn't really notice that while I was watching it. Uh, but now that you mentioned it, I do like I do kind of get that that was probably what they were going for, and I think it works really well because he does sound very eerie and creepy, and I think that does kind of add to it a lot. Mm. And uh, well, I didn't like well, I didn't find him like quite as entertaining as Caster. There was definitely a very delight, a very twist of delightfulness of how he operates. And I especially like the way these two played off of each other, because it really made you feel like Catherine earlier were a match made in heaven, or rather a match made down below, because these two murder bros are out to have a good time, and it very much sucks to be you if you cross them. Mm. Murder bros! <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, anyway, all five of these performances were very well done. I don't have anything bad to say about any of them. Two bros uh, sitting in a corpse pile five feet apart because they don't care. <laughs> and they're not gay. <laughs> Alright, uh, okay. And so, we got, so we got a little depraved there, but now it's time to get classy because <laughs> next up we have... Team NTR! Team NTR! 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 Settle down, we're getting very aristocratic here, and I'm... Oh, even better for the NTR! Some royals broking! I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jet, we're not being very faithful to you right now. Alright, and, uh, okay, and, uh, pray for me as I try to pronounce these names correctly. We have Kadith Elmoloy, Archibald. We have Sola Oinoida. Sola! Oh my god! Let's just call it Okay, Sola Oinoida Re Sophia Re. Her name's Salau, that's what you need to know. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah, just Salau. Like, I did the full name because I had to. 
And then we have our it's like Princess Fudruckers all over again. Yes, and then we have our lantern for this story, Diarmud, which is weirdly the easiest name to pronounce out of these. Diarmud und Diarmud u Dubin. You 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 cut it off at the full at the Diarmud. It's Diarmud u Dubin. So did Diarmud in this show? He got cut off. Yep, God so damn it. Yep. So Kadif is a smug aristocrat who believes that bloodline determines her worth as a mage. While Salau is his wife who plays to support him, but really just wants to get pierced by DR Boots Lance, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, don't we all? Uh, if you know what right. I mean there, buddy. Okay, so... Uh, I mean, I think... half of... There are people on this on this episode who admitted to wanting to fuck a, fa- a blue space Nazi. I'm not naming names, but... <laughs> oh, God. Yamato 2199. Yep, uh, so as for Diarmud, Andrew, would you mind giving us a story? Okay, so when it comes to Diarmud, the main thing is that he is from Irish mythology. Uh, he's the son of Don and one of the Fianna in the Feyn cycle of the Irish myth. There's three parts to Diarmud's story that are important. It's the mole, the girl, and the boar. Let's start with the mole. Diermud was famous for his beauty and for his love spot, which made him irresistible to women. Basically, mole, mole, mole. Basically, when he's hunting one night, he met a woman who was the personification of youth. After sleeping with him, she put a magic love spot on his forehead that caused any woman who looked at him to fall in love. Then we get to the story of the woman. And when it comes to the woman, it's basically more or less that here all right let me find my notes uh basically the whole thing with the mole leads him to trouble with an encounter with granny how do you say Granin? Granin. i think it's granny the bride of fion mac come hail granny having f- oh grow up <laughs> come hail okay grant granny grain is it grand great names are weird granny Having fallen in love with Diermud at her wedding party, placed a gaze upon him to run away with her. It has been said that even while at large, Diermud stuck up to his fidelity to Fionn and did not lay a finger on on her. They were pursued relentlessly by Fionn, but after much blood was shed, he decided to recognize their marriage, granted Diermud a proper title and land, and welcomed them back as subject. Basically, the whole thing about... Diermud is that they wanted to be together and they fell in love, but he still respected the fact that she was somebody else's wife and did not lay a finger on her until they were recognized, brought back, and properly wed. Now we get to the... the boar. Here's how this one starts. Diermud's father, Don, was a warrior of the Fianna. At a dinner party, Don was jealous of the attention given to his son of Agnes's steward, so he killed the steward's son when no one was looking. Agnes resurrected the steward's son in the form of a boar, but the steward required Fionn to find out the truth and, upon learning the truth, put a curse upon Diermud. He was to be killed by the boar someday. Now, that leads us to later on, after he has, this is sometime after he's been wed with Granny, and he's gotten on better terms with Fionn, the the guy originally set to marry her. 
Sometime later, when he's hunting with him, Diermud is fatally injured by that very demon boar. The reincarnation of that half-brother that was killed that his father killed. Fion, who had the ability to transform spring water into a powerful healing agent, was with him. So Diermud wasn't afraid to die. Fion only needed to walk a few steps to the nearby spring, but his jealousy and hatred of Diermud was still in him. He spilled the water twice, and by the third time he went to scoop it, Diermud had already died to his wound. Wow, getting done dirty even in mythology. Even in wow, fuck this guy. Even in mythology, even though he was recognized and properly wed, when he had the opportunity to let him die, that jealousy was still there. So even in his own myth, he's laying there dying. And at the start of episode 9, he is laying there dying because of that. And I thought that was really interesting. All right. Okay. I have one more note that will come up later in a relevant discussion, so remind me about that. Okay, so, playing Kadif, we have one Doug Erholtz, who you would know as TK from Digimon Adventure Zero Two, Akihiro Artlin from Mobile Suit Gundam Iron Blooded Orphans, and Asuma Sarutobi from Naruto. Uh, for Salau, we have Karen Strassman, who you would know as Callan Stotfield from Code Geass, Mia Fortner from Monster, and Nanako no Tojima from Persona 4 The Animation, because every day is great. At your Junes. <laughs> okay. I like how we all just, just knew to do that. Yeah. And lastly, for the Armored, we have Grant George, who you would know as Knight Rikuo from Nero Rise of the Yokai Clan, Gen Shishio from Kakashi, and because it's relevant to tonight's discussion, Gilgamesh from the 2006 D version of Fate Stay Night and the Unlimited Blade Works movie. Yeah! <laughs> wow! <laughs> Ain't that something? Yes, it is. Yep. <laughs> that's really interesting. I didn't remember that he was Gilgamesh in that because I never watched that, but that's funny. Okay, uh, let's start off with Lord El Malloy, because this dude's a piece of shit. He is such yeah. a, he's such a stuck-up little douche, but, uh, like I said, Doug Erholtz er does a really great job at making that sort of snobby, rich, rich boy, magic society man come across, and he, d he really does sound very snobby and great, and just... He sounds angry and bitter, and but he does a really good job at, like, sounding like he's on the verge of near death, just coughing and screaming when he's hit with a single bullet that destroys his magic circuits. Like, ooh. This dude... Rib bullet, not even once. Rib bullets, not even once. They're ribbed for his pleasure, not yours. Ooh. <laughs> 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 That's a spicy meatball. <laughs> that is a hot take right there. It's funny because ribbed for his pleasure. <laughs> okay, back on track. No, Doug does a whole lot of like crazy like screaming when it comes to some of the more brutal stuff that happens to his character, and he pulls that off fantastically. Karen Strassman is she, she plays the part of the strong, silent wife who eventually succumbs to her urges and gets a little bit crazy. 
And yeah, she kind of goes a little cuckoo for Cocoa Pops. She breaks his fingers until he. Caster wasn't the only one causing a flood in Fuyuki. <laughs> Are you proud of yourself? Absolutely. Caster and Co and Kiritsugu, but more on that later. Anyways. Oh. I'm not sorry. Anyways, yo, but uh, she sounds really good, and she sounds noticeably like frustrated and like angry when Diermood is rejecting her, and also when she freaks out about her arm getting sliced off. No, it wasn't sliced off. That shit was shot off. No, okay, no, it was cleaved off, and then it was shot. There's a sequence. Just I remember I just started screaming in the chat at that point. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? That's kind of what happens in Fate. But yeah, no, Karen Strassman does a really good job. These two get done dirty, by the way. They, like, they're, they're assholes, but even for this show, they get done dirty in a very bad way. But not as bad as Diermood. Diermood, let's talk about Grant George. Grant George is great, and he sounds goddamn sexy. Like, there's just something about his voice that sounds very gruff and cool, and just, like, he sounds like he would be this kind of person, and it's really interesting. The charisma, the honor, and the death. The death. Oh my god. He is vile. He is angry the blood spilling from his eyes as he curses everybody's name as they has tarnished the honor of a knight who all he wanted to do was serve like we joke about the lancer being done dirty in fate none no lancer has or ever will be done as dirty as diermood i'm gonna hug my little karna plushie right now karna anyways <laughs> But it's okay, baby. I'm gonna cover your ears. You don't need to hear about this. No, but I, I really, really loved Grant George as Dier Mood, and I thought he was a really, really strong presence as his character, even in his final moments. Shh, shut the fuck up. He's sleeping. All right, Megan. Put Karna back on his little uh thing, his little leash. Um, man. Oh boy, where to start with Team NTR? Um, well, nobody was cheating on their acting abilities. That was just stupid. Um, God, where do I start with this? Uh, Doug Erholtz as Archibald is just like, he seems like the worst fucking teacher you would ever have in your life. Like, because that's the thing. He starts off as uh, Waver's teacher at the clock tower, right? Yeah. Yeah. He is just like he's the type of teacher who you turn in a really well done research paper to and then he would shit on you in the comments. Oh, I can totally see him doing that. God, he so like, would. <laughs> is that an Oxford fucking comma I see out of place? Negative ten. <laughs> and he'd do it in front of the other students too. Students. We're gonna proofread this paper anonymously. That's that's this just that's that's what I'm I'm thinking about, and he is just such a fucking weasel. And my favorite thing is that he is such he's a weasel trying to wear a top hat and, and like 
twirl little cane, but his little weaselly hands can't grab it properly. <laughs> because there, to me, like, one of the scenes that really gets me is when, after they take out Caster, the the church, uh, I guess the Watcher of the Holy Grail War says, whoever takes out Caster, I will give back a command seal to and he just, that whole scene's like, well, you know, Caster was the one who helped, uh, Lancer took down Caster and I'm his master. And it's like, didn't you pass it off to your wife? No, no, that bitch didn't do shit. <laughs> <laughs> just give me back the command seal, you know you want to. Thanks, buddy. Bang, bang into the room. I'm telling you what a bang, bang right over you. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> and then... And then he just, and then, but there is, like, I think he, re- I really like how Fate Zero really goes out of its way to use the, uh, when, especially for this and another group of characters we're talking about, how they went and used the mythology stories as a way to set up relationships between master and servant. Mm. And... And it is in this, because obviously Salau is Granny, uh, and... You're you're saying that Fion is basically Archibald. Is, is, is Archibald. Because if you, you think about how they died, um, Archibald signs, uh, he signs a contract with, uh, Kiritsugu. It's like, hey, guess what, bitch, I've got your wife, and if you don't fucking take this, if you don't take my offer, uh, I'm gonna kill your wife in front of you. And you're fucked. And so he gives up. So not only is he out of his magic, he's basically out his honor. And then they get just fucking wrecked. With, it's like, oh, I said I wouldn't kill you. Hey, Maya! Tactical sniper. Tactical sniping. And then Karen Strassman as Salau has this, she's, she's a grown woman that sounds like a horny teenager. Um, and it works because I thought Salau was a teenager. Just her design was very youthful, and it was kind of actually creepy that she was engaged to Archibald. It does, uh, like, let's there be, were seven levels of no touch. Let's be real here. In regards to the magic society and the fact that like people can and will like do like put others into a family for power. And will sell off their children? That, oh, yeah, hell yeah, I believe Like, th- that totally would not surprise me if she was at least a couple years younger. Yeah, and she was... God, that scene... Karen Strassman got really creepy when she's breaking his fingers. Ooh, when you hear... Yeah. Like, there's no sound. There's just the snap. Ugh. And she's so seductive. Like, she's so... Like... In a way, she's also very childish, like Uryu, but she's, like, trying to play the con- the conniving seductress to get what she wants. She's like, oh, we are doing this together, honey! <laughs> Crack. And then, <laughs> oh god, Grant George, just... Chef's kiss. Oh, baby. Uh, Deermood is actually not the most attractive character to me at the beginning. Like, I was like, okay, why do people want, like, to have his lance in their pants? Lance in the pants. The next game from the Nasu series. <laughs> Put the lances in the pants. Kill Koo. 
when Koo pops out of his pants, you know you've lanced him too hard. <sighs> or wait, since you're putting Lance in the pants, shouldn't it be Archer in the pants? Oh, God. I've read that shit, and it's... Chef's kiss. Um... Uh, there was also there was also a weird dojin where for some reason like Salau and and Archibald were Waver's parents and Diarmuid was his brother and I was just like what the okay fuck? that's that's weird. that's weird even for me <laughs> porn is weird and for some reason Waver was a girl wow <laughs> huh. I'm not saying where the rest of this goes you you stop talking please continue. <laughs> This has been Dojinshi Theater. It won't be the last time, let's be honest. Oh, when we get to, uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we get to the archers. Yeah, baby. <laughs> uh, no, but Grant George was just so... Not only was he really sexy, he was just also very genuine with everything. Like, you legitimately believe that this man was going to fight Saber, and that he respected Saber. And it's really weird because a lot of other characters don't really respect Saber very much. They really don't. No. I, he, you know what it is? Like, Diermut, Diermut at first was like, oh great, you're just another sexist prick. Fights, fights, our Ar Ar Archer, uh, fights Saber. You know what? Deal, buddy. I'm gonna fight you honorably. And I like how he, his genuineness and his heart was very contrasted to two absolutely vile people. Mm. And it's why him bleeding from the eyes and cursing them is so effective as a performance. Because if Grant George didn't carry his performance that way, I think that scene loses a lot of value. Mm -hmm. And that is a problem that I do have with another actor where, like, the performance, yeah, it would be good for what the scene is asking for, but it wouldn't have that, like, what makes it special. Like, again... This is another set of characters that if you put it in a lesser production with their performances, they would be the clear standouts. But in here, they're just another layer of really solid framework for the dub. And I, I loved every second of them. I think I also just pieced together why Mood bonds with Saber better than I think the two kings. Because Saber was a knight first before she was a true leader. Hmm, yes. Like, the whole- Also be in, in Legend, he got fucked over by a king, it feels like. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Okay, uh, Roots? Yeah, so I- I guess I'll start with Grant George's Lancer. It was, um, it's great. Like, I'm gonna be honest, like, he has the swagger. And, um, going- going along with that was, uh, Karen Straussman is Solau who's taken in by that charisma and swagger and like she she plays things like halfway between like the conniving the I almost want to say the conniving ex even though they're technically like still in love at the beginning of the of the show but like she she plays it with a combination of like the conniving ex and like the doting girlfriend and it's just playing both sides yeah and it's like i i really like the performance especially with the um especially at the end with you know 
all the stuff that goes down with Lancer getting played dirty. Like, I, I, I really like the chemistry that both of them had together, and, like, Doug Erholtz as uh, El Malloy, like, God, what a weaselly little shit. I, I generally, like, I don't associate Doug Erholtz with, like, weaselly, weaselly characters very much. I mean, he was, he was Gein and Bleach, but, like, other than that, I really... Okay, that's a lie. There, there are a few others, but... Like... When I first saw this show, it was kind of a play against what I was used to hearing him as, because... I was used to hearing him as, like, Teenage TK. So now he's, like, this grown-up dude who's just, like, stabbing people. Scum of the earth. Yeah, pretty much. It's just really cool. And an interesting little fact, like, he was almost the, the master of writer. Like, that would have been a really interesting dynamic had that actually gone through. But we'll we'll be getting to writer here in a bit. But like I, I just had to bring that up. Okay. Okay. All right. Um. So so we can't stress we don't have as much to say on her. Um. Well, we haven't had like too many opportunities to talk about her on this show. She's generally shown to be a very versatile actor, and she can do a lot of character types really, really well. And uh, she more or less delivered here, and she did a really great job of playing the two sides of Seuss allow. Where she tries to keep the appearance of, you know, being a dutiful, supportive wife. And while also having that not-so-secret attraction to Lancer. And she transitions between both aspects of her character very seamlessly. And like everyone else was saying, I especially enjoyed her during the scene where Kanev first finds out he's been crippled. And the way she manipulates him and, you know, also breaks his limbs is really chilling. And I really appreciate how Karen sells this mix of, like, business-like efficiency... You know, where she's trying to be, like, very matter-of-fact about it. And while at the same time, it's also this very quiet desperation where she really wants to get that command seal so she can have Lancer. And um, you can just really feel that contrast going into Lau's mind throughout that whole scene. And I thought that was really well done. And uh, speaking of Kanef, boy howdy, Duggar Holtz was clearly having a lot of fun having it up with this guy. Uh, like Dan Ward, I only really knew Duggar Holtz for, like, a couple of things at the time. Uh, the biggest being probably Azuma from Naruto, and uh, those two characters sound very different, to say the least. As a fun fact, I also, for a very long time, I also used to confuse Doug Gerholt and Sunny Straight, but that's a whole other story there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I wasn't really used to hearing that kind of performance from him, but he absolutely nails every ounce of Kid and smug sense of superiority, and uh, he really makes it feel like he's this guy who feels like he knows exactly how the world works, like there's, he's like, uh, you know, like, there's the nobles, there's the peasants and all that. Uh, okay, uh, but then everything comes crashing down for him when he discovers that Kiritsugu plays by very, very different rules. And, uh, every time- Kiritsugu that... has rules? <laughs> Supposedly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, pretty much every time KNF opened his mouth, I watched see him get served the big old slice of humble pie. And uh, it really speaks to just how well Doug Erhold sold that personality. Uh, his interactions with Karen Strassman and Grant George were also really effective. And uh, one thing I kind of appreciated about the character is like a little side thing that kind of made him feel a little bit more human is that 
Despite how pompous and arrogant he is, you can tell that deep down, Kate really did love his wife, which kind of makes his downfall a little more tragic. Mm. Uh, my only complaint is that I feel like story-wise, it might have been like kind of cool for Waver to beat him, just as like a little aside from how the first episode goes. Uh, but then that's also not the point of Waver's character arc, so I get why that didn't really happen. Uh, but speaking of getting robbed, boy howdy, Grant George is the R mood. Uh, so I, so like I said in the Skip Beat episode, uh, Grant George has a very, like, naturally suave and seductive voice, so him playing a character who suffered through ordeals because he was too charismatic and suave for his own good is a very good fit. And he definitely plays that, and he definitely plays that up very well. And he also does an equally great job of portraying the Armoon's sense of honor, and his own dynamic was really great with Saber, and like Megan was saying. As I, and like, and I really like how much you can tell he respects Saber, and I thought, yeah, I just really like that whole bit. But of course, while his honor and charisma are all very good, his, like, his crowding scene was definitely during the, that whole bit with Kenneth's demise, where he quite literally got backed up by Kiritsugu, and just, the level of rage in that man's voice was, like, bone-chilling. Like, <laughs> in any other show, that would be, like, probably the worst moment or like the worst betrayal or ideology breaking that moment. would be that would be like either a the turning point or b the very end. that would be the turning point yeah. or the very end this is like not even this is like the show's top five maybe and it's barely even the start of the second half yeah <laughs> yeah but anyway yeah that whole bit was like really terrifying <laughs> but it was yeah but it was just really well done and i Honestly, can't praise it enough. Good job, team. These... Good job, team, NTR. Yep, all three of these performances were strong. While they're not, like, quite my favorites in the show, they really do a great job of holding this big ensemble together. Why do they have to be team NTR? Why can't they just put Salau in the middle and each one gets a hole? <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's okay, just say and... pride gets in the way. And sometimes yep. people are... What? Uh, Look, here's the thing. Uh, what's the matter, Archibald? Can't get it up because of another man? Uh... <laughs> Reverse harem. Yep, and with that, it's time for our next section as we move on to a tale of two houses. Because next up, we have Tokyo Mitosaka, Kari Mato, Yay! Mato, I'm sorry. Oh! Wow! <laughs> I think you booed the wrong one. By the way, I couldn't. No, I booed. I booed Tokyo Mi. But who? Who'd you <laughs> yay? Karia. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get yeah, to okay. that we'll get to that okay uh, so Tokiomi is the head of the Tosaka family who sold one of his daughters Sakura out to the Matos while Karia is an exile from the Nato family who comes back in order to save Sakura from her cruel fate uh, Zokin is the head of the Mato family and, and who needs he... to be hit by a truck yep and while he aspires to obtain the Grail door to become immortal this time around, he's mostly just in the game to watch Karia suffer. That's such a. That's <laughs> such a. Oh, by the way, are we are we talking about Berserker too? Yes. Okay. Uh, yep. Can uh, we because... can we just talk about the fact that like literally some way through the point he just straight up admits like, you know, I want the Grail, but I kind of watching my idiot asshole son <laughs> suffer because of me is so much more fun. It's like. At this, at my age, I need, like, Viagra and, like, ten different worms. This is doing it for me something fierce. <laughs> All the meanwhile, Kari's just he... filling himself up on creepy crawlers. Yep. 
Do you think he uses one of the worms as a flashlight? And I'm going for a bathroom break. Good night, everybody. I'll be RB. Okay, and, um... <laughs> uh, okay, and... So... I'm so proud of that one! <laughs> uh, so, to listen to these guys, we have our Berserker, and uh, big spoilers in three, two, one. It's Lancelot, everybody! <laughs> By the way, can I bring something up about this? Uh, let, okay, let me just uh, go through the legend real quick first. Well, quickly in quotation marks because I have quite a bit on this one because mm -hmm. Fate War is weird. Um, so Lancelot hails from the legends of King Arthur and was one of his greatest knights. Um, after the death of his father, King Ban of Benwick, uh, Lancelot was carried off by the Lady of the Lake who raised him to become a perfect and chivalrous knight. When the Lady of the Lake replaced Merlin as King Arthur's advisor, she asked the king to look after Lancelot and for him to be knighted. Upon becoming an official knight, Lancelot became the personal champion of Queen Guinevere, and the three of them became very close. However, one day Lancelot disappeared and, re and later returned, claiming to have seen the Holy Grail. Unfortunately, Lancelot was denied the Grail because, despite being married to his wife Elaine, he secretly desired Guinevere. Jealous of her, Elaine used magic to ensnare Lancelot and tricked him into believing he was sleeping with Guinevere, causing the two of them to bear a son named Galahad. When Lancelot found out he was being deceived, and Elaine killed herself, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, when Lancelot found out he was being deceived, he fled, and Elaine killed herself, setting into motion events that would eventually bring down the, that would eventually lead to the downfall of King Offer's empire. Uh, as for fate lore, it goes very differently in that. Uh, Lancelot's backstory more or less remains the same, However, he also had a very strong desire to help lessen King Offer's burdens after Sir Tristan left. And uh, Lancelot was very close to Guinevere in that version of the story and had a secret relationship with her, which made his whole fighting out that King Offer was actually a woman, a woman all the harsher, as uh, King Offer's marriage to Guinevere was essentially just a way for her to maintain the illusion that she was a man. Um, so Lancelot... In spite of that, Lancelot held back on fleeing with Guinevere due to his loyalty to Offer. Uh, but when his political enemies found out about the affair, Morgan Le Fay ordered Guinevere to be executed. Lancelot attempted to save her, killing several knights in the process, but failed and fled back to his own domain. In spite of his betrayal, he remained loyal to King Offer, and upon finding out that the kingdom had eventually fallen, he was driven into despair and madness, causing him to be reborn into the Berserker class as a heroic spirit. And there you go. Okay, so I want to point something out about this. Is that they don't bring up, they don't reveal who Berserker is until, like, literally the last minute of the show. Mm. Or, like, one of the last episodes of the show. But if you pay attention to the relationship between Karia and Tokiomi and Tokiomi's wife, Aoi, you can figure out who it is, because it's very similar. Yeah. Yes, indeed it is. It's... And I think... <laughs> And I think I said that to somebody, to, like, a couple of you guys, you're like, all like, holy shit, uh, I right. never pieced it together, but the parallels between Kai, Kai, uh, Karia. Karia, between Karia and Aoi and Lancelot and Guinevere are very interesting. Fun fact I found researching Diermood, because apparently Diermood and Granny's tragic love affair served as the model for the tale of Lancelot and Guinevere. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. <laughs> There's a fun fact for you. 
that's cool. Tragic Love, a hidden theme of Fate Zero. Yes. Uh, so anyway, funny story Gary with Magic. that, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Anyway, that was a mouthful, but uh, anyway, playing Karimato, we have Liam O'Brien, who you would know as Gar of the Desert from Naruto, Nanashi from Martin Awakened Romance, and Dr. Kenzo Tenma from Monster. Uh, for Lancelot, we have Kyle Hebert, who has been older Gohan in the Dragon Ball franchise, Kiyabo from Naruto, and Kamina from Gorn Lagan. As for Zoken and Tokiomi, we actually have a couple of very interesting VAs to talk about. Uh, playing Zokin, we have Michael Donovan, who you would actually know for his roles in Canadian voice acting, including Guile from Street Fighter, Sabretooth from X-Men Evolution, and Ryoga Hibiki from, Wong, from Rodmo One Half. Wow. Yeah. And uh, playing Tokyo Mitosaka, we have Mark Derison, who you would know as George Josar I from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Rowan Zolo from the Four Kids version of One Piece. Please direct all of your death threats through at Roots of Justice. I repeat, that is at Roots of Justice. Hey, at least, <laughs> at least take it to me. Come on. First of all, one jet, you're gonna die. <laughs> okay. Get to the important uh, one. And, My face yep, is punchable. Uh, yep, and, and of course, he is guts for the 1997 Berserk anime. In which I must now make the following joke and decapitate myself. Rin, my love for you is like a truck. Berserker daughter! <laughs> I think Owie wants- I think Owie wants to- a Tokiomi to stuff her like a Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> I'm gonna- I'm gonna take the reins on this before this gets any more strange. Flashlight work! Worm flashlight, buddy. Worm flashlight. See, oh, see, that gets even worse because when, like, near the end of the show, he basically, oh, Karia, you're still alive. Here's an extra strong bug. This one took Sakura's innocence. I'm like, no! Yeah, no, it's like, yo, no! Why would you say it like that? No! Bad touch, bad touch. As if be as if throwing a five year as if throwing a ten year old into a basement dungeon full of cockroaches wasn't enough. <sighs> like that's just that, that shit was like an episode of Hoarders gone wrong. Okay, so yeah. I gotta figure out uh, where should I start. Uh, Zokin is probably the one I, with the least amount I have to say. Probably because I have not seen Heaven's Field, which I'm told he's much more prominent. That being said, Zokid is a creepy asshole, and he sounds like so, and he looks like so. The fact that it's basically revealed, oh, at this point, I'm not even trying to get the grail. I want to <laughs> fuck with Karia, is some douchebaggery on a level of nothing else. Um, but I, uh, Michael Donovan does a really good job at making Karia sound like an old skeevy asshole. Um, Kyle A. Bear is really good at yelling and screaming as per his repertoire of Dragon Ball Z. And I think he does a really good job with the inhumane sounding moments in regards to Lancelot slash Berserker. As well as like the, in his final moments when he's finally confronting Arturia for real. And it's a really interesting to see him get, like, let go as well as get legitimately angry. And he does a really good job. Um, 
Let's see. Now, who should I talk about first? Let's talk about Dad of the Year first. Uh, Tokuyomi is charismatic, suave, calculating, and a diabolical man with plans upon plans, with plans to plan, who is undermined by his own hubris that his closest allies are the ones that basically kill him. But Mark Dreisen sounds really smooth and calm when it comes to Tokuyomi. Like, it's just business as usual. Like, he, like, magic is just his life, and this is how he works. And he never thinks or talks like he's doing anything morally bankrupt. This is just what he knows. This is what he was raised. And in his mind, this is what's best for his family and for his children. It is genuinely what he thinks, and he shows no shame or sympathy for it. But God, when he finally gets his comeuppance, it sucks for like his family, but it's it's pretty it's pretty great hubris. Now Karia. Man fucking Karia. I don't think there is anybody who is done worse or who gets it worse. In the entire show, because at least, at least some of the other people who get screwed, they have their moments of joy. They have their happiness. I don't think there is a single moment from the beginning to the end of Fate Zero that is not pure agony for Karia. He wants to save Sakura. He wants to reunite the family. He wants to force himself back into a world he got out of. And the entire time he is being eaten alive, he's grayed his hair. He is being torn apart. I think he's blind in one I eye. I think he's also blind in one eye. And, like, Liam O'Brien is just... I love Liam O'Brien as an actor, and he is just in a pure state of suffering. Suffering. Yeah. Being Kari Amato is suffering. By the way, speaking of Fate Stay Night, he is actually the archer in Fate Stay Night 2006. Fun fact. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that. For I figured that'd be good. Can to we do. please do it? I'm willing to suffer through that. I hope I'd rather not. <laughs> Point being, Liam O'Brien, he sounds really diabolical at times when he wants to be, but he sounds so in pain and suffering. Like, imagine if Gara from Naruto's, like, internal turmoil was just never-ending. Never-ending. And... So what you're saying is, while Gara left the Hot Topic, Kari is basically the manager. Like, here's the thing. Karia is the most tragedy Shakespearean style ever, because he is tricked into killing the woman he- okay. He- He doesn't kill- he effectively kills he her. He effectively kills her. He basically cuts a, a lot of oxygen from her brain to the point that she is- What would I even call that? She- point- she's That is a tragedy right then and there. Point being, yeah, and in his dying moments, he runs to try and take away Sakura from all of this. And in his mind, the final moments are just, he has reunited the sisters, Aoi is there with him, the girls call him Daddy Karia, 
as he slinks over on the stairs and falls to his death as he is consumed by the worms. And then, and then, in the softest voice, Christina V goes, "You should never disobey grandfather." (sighs) It's so bad. It's so terrible. God, this is gonna be a meaty episode. Yeah. You know, you know what that reminded me of when you said like she saw Sakura. It's the picture of Erica Lindbeck. What? Or that one selfie, Erica Lindbeck, eyes deader than Sakura Mato. Oh God! There's a lot of dead-eyed people in this show. Let's continue onward. It's my turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Beckett's turn. So I don't have a ton to say about Berserker other than Kyle Haber does good growly noises. Um, and. He, his growling is very effective when he makes Saber cry. Uh, but there, I do like the contrast when you actually do get to hear normal Lancelot's voice. Like, for like the one split second. <laughs> that he actually does sound like a completely different person. Like, he doesn't sound like he's full of corruption and awfulness. Uh, Zokan probably needs to go to an old folks home and die. <laughs> Like, Grandpa needs to be denied his Viagra worms. Just down the hatch. Ah, the worms. The worms have made my penis hard again. Uh... This is what you get for the glub glub bullshit. Fair. You earn the roots of justice let you earn this. I am very uncomfortable. You have done your job well. Just, just, Zokin is a very uncomfortable man. <laughs> just, Viagworms for the mage who doesn't have it all. Uh, oh, God. Mark Dreisen is Tokiomi, yes. correct? Sorry. Yes. Okay. So, man, I wanted to punch Tokiomi in the face for a majority of the series. And man, Mark Dreisen does a good job giving him a very punchable voice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're like, wait a second, how can a voice be punchable? In that Tokiomi Tosaka is like some asshole at a country club who puts his daughter into child beauty pageants and then puts his second born in like the daycare going, daddy doesn't care right now, honey. Oh my god. He's so right. Like, <laughs> like, it's like, go home, go home, go home, Sarada. Dad, my name is Sakura. Whatever, Sarah. Dude. Dad, that's not even Japanese. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Megan, you are on some galaxy brain shit right now. Okay, I, I totally owe you a soda when we get to Texas. <laughs> go home and like I would totally believe that this like if I ever met this person like if I heard this voice I totally believe that this own man would sell his daughter into magical like essentially magical like old school like dowry worm bullshit and he god he's such a sexist prick fucking Christ why have one it's like my daughters don't mean if this was a, a male son you wouldn't have fucking done it um, cause, ah, 
Ah, fuck you, Toad. Which is why, like, by the way, I like how very noble, like, how very false noble uh, Mark Dreisen plays Tokiomi in death. Because Tokiomi is the only person who died in this show besides, like, the affably evil, like, Uryu uh, and Caster, where I was like, heh, heh. <laughs> he had it coming. Like, Karma was gonna he hit him something coming. hard someday. He only had... He ran... He ran into Kotomine. He ran into Kotomine's knife. <laughs> he ran into Kotomine's knife ten times. <laughs> and oh god, I remember my my first reaction to when I saw Karia was, I like this guy. I hope nothing bad happens. To I him. saw that. I remember that, and I started hysterically laughing. Man, I you had no idea but how hard it was to do that to myself. Yeah. <laughs> I hope nothing bad happens to Karia. He's really cool. What a good guy. We were all in a text room. We couldn't look at each other, but we were all looking at each other, being like, nobody fucking say anything. <laughs> at least it happens in like the first and second episodes. Like they they rip that band-aid off. Oh like, yeah, like they just rip they they rip a lot of band-aids off very quickly. Like I said, dungeon full of worms. Oh, <laughs> But God, I just wanted to. Ha I this man gets set on fire at one point. He he gets he gets basically. Good God, good Jesus Lord! Just bend over, poor Caria. Why don't you? Show? I don't think there's a single God. person in his corner by the end. I think he get. I'm in his fucking corner. Aside from Megan. Like Caria's a. Caria Caria deserved to win. Fuck fuck everybody uh, else. Caria deserved to save Sakura. I'm even if he did strangle a woman. I'm going to be honest. But at that point. I'm going to be honest. I think the fact that. Here's the problem with that thing. He would have saved Sakura. But then he would have given that power to Zokin. Do you trust that man with any power? And no, just kill Zokin! <laughs> have Berserker kill Zokin, you fucker! Just stick the sword up his ass! Point being, Karia is truly the most tragic, humorous Shakespearean being person. Karia Mato is suffering! It is the most suffering there ever is. And he was hot! Karia, <laughs> <laughs> uh... like, even post-worm Karia's kind of got it going on still. Um, <laughs> we need a little LASIK like... in that eye. It'll, it'll come out. I mean, it's something a contact and some foundation can't fix. Can it fix all of the veins everywhere? And the bleeding. <laughs> I mean... And the bugs coming out of the bleeding. I mean, as long as the bugs don't come out of his dick, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is now this is now leading to some very uncomfortable questions. I don't want to... I do, Please, let's move on. I can't do this. I can't talk about... I can't talk about centipedes coming out of his wee-wee. Okay, Roots. Okay, okay. I'm not done! Jesus Christ! Man, centipedes out of a wee-wee sounds like a bad Tokyo cool dojin, but... Ooh, wait! Hang on, hang on. Before we continue, I have to ask you something, Megan. Me I've gotta pee! No, Megan, before you pee. Megan. If you put Karia in Tokyo Ghoul, would he even be out of place? No, he wouldn't, actually. That's what I thought. You go pee. <laughs> now let me 
finish this, then I'll pee. And Liam O'Brien did a really good job playing him, and he played him so... He played it so close to himself, because I feel like Karia could have gone absolutely off the off the deep end, like, mustache-twirling, like, psychopath, but he didn't! He played him with, like, quiet rage and, like, a man trying to keep hold of his last shred of dignity. And it was so good, and I felt so bad that he died! <laughs> Karia Mato deserved better! <clears throat> And I think, honestly, this might be one of my favorite Liam O'Brien roles of all time. Interesting. And I just, God, holy shit, he was so good! Karia! <laughs> Roots go, I'm full pee. Okay. Alright, so I guess I'm gonna start with Berserker, because that's, like, that, that's the shallow end of the pool here. Mm-hmm. Um... Like, Kyle Hebert did a really good job. It It's a role that's mainly grunting and screaming and, like, just, just in the, in, in brackets, angry noises. But, um, I, I think he did a really great job with that. Especially in the final confrontation with Saber. Where he's starting to, he's kind of regaining his wits and, like, and going through everything and like that that was that was heartbreaking but um moving on to Tokiomi who is the exact opposite <laughs> oh god like uh, like Megan said Mark Teresen had like the most punchable voice cuz he's he's playing Tokiomi with this false bravado but you you know in the back of your head he would he would sell his daughter out for a nickel because he pretty much did he pretty much did and Zoken oh, like that was a role with such like it's not even anger he's just. It's just one of those things where he, like, he's just a petty little shit. He's an old man, but he's also a petty little shit. And, um, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up the name real quick, because I, I forgot what the name of his actor. Uh, Michael Donovan. Michael Donovan. Michael Donovan, thank you. And, uh, Michael Donovan just, uh, he, he gives it such a... Like, he he has such a constant sneer in his voice with everything he does. Like, to Sakura, to Karia, to just about everybody he's not, like, in direct business with. And it's just, it's just great. And Liam O'Brien as Karia, like, I, I really like that he's sort of, like Megan said, he has, like, a shred of dignity left and he's trying to hold on to it with all of his might. He is probably the most tragic character of 8-0, and Liam O'Brien plays him flawlessly. Because there's, like, you can hear the anger in his voice, but it's like that passive-aggressive anger. And it's, like, it's great. All, all four of these actors did a really good job, and, like, thumbs up. 
Thumbs up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, once again, I'll start off with the one I kind of the least to say about, and in this case, that would be Kyle Hibbert's Lies a lot. Um, for the most part, he didn't really have too much to do with the show besides, like, grunts and stuff. I mean, but that stuff is important, too, and he handled all of that very well. Uh, but for me, his performance mostly came down to the to his final scene where Saber realizes who he is. And to his credit, Kyle Hibbert handled that scene really well. Like, again, it was only one scene, but in that one scene, you could really just feel the level of grief his character was carrying. Especially, like, yeah, especially when he's, like, really trying his best to console Saber and be like, uh, it's not your fault that this happened. And it just makes that whole scene all the more tragic, and I really enjoyed his delivery there. Mm-hmm. And as for Liam O'Brien Ascaria, and full disclosure, I should probably mention that Liam O'Brien is pretty high up on my list of favorite anime voice actors. Like, I'm not sure if he's so quiet in my top five, but he's definitely up there. And so it goes without saying that he can pretty much do no wrong in my eyes, and sure enough, he did not do any wrong here. Uh, same can't quite be said for Kari, though, because boy, howdy, does this man go through some stuff. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, in the beginning, it feels like Kari Amato did nothing wrong. <laughs> yeah, like, in the beginning, it feels like he's just driven purely by this genuine desire to help Sakura reunite. To help Sakura just reunite her with Rin and all that good stuff. And then it becomes a desire and, to basically kill all, especially yeah. spite Tokuyomi. Yep. Yep, like I mean, more... he's not wrong. He, Tokiyomi deserves to be spited. Fuck Tokiyomi. Look, Tokiyomi yep. sucks, but here's the thing. At some point, it becomes less about helping others and more about spiting others and satisfying himself, yep. and that's his downfall. Yep, the more time we spend with him, the more it becomes apparent that the bigger thing driving him is that jealousy he feels for Tokiyomi, and that what he really ultimately wants is to replace him. And Liam, Liam O'Brien's just really juggles that character arc of making the character go from, like, very heroic to very, like, kind of twisted pretty much perfectly. And, uh, but even throughout it all, he still manages to make Kario feel very sympathetic throughout that whole ordeal. And even when everything eventually backfires on him, you still can't help but pity the guy, and I really appreciate that. Uh, as far as Mark Direction is concerned, it's really a shame we haven't got to talk about him up until now, because... Even though a lot of his early work includes, like, Fork and Subs and whatnot, he's a very strong actor, and even in those days, he really stood out a lot. Uh, as for his Tokiomi, he does a really great job of giving this character this grand sense of nobility and pride, but unlike Kanef, who's, like, really smoking into your face about it, Tokiomi comes off as very much more reserved and resolute in his ways, like, very set in his ways. I feel like he would do that Calvin Candy thing and, like, Diego and Jane where, like, he acts very friendly, but he would absolutely pull out that skull and be like, and this is why, like, and this is why Muggles are inferior. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> my like, okay, God. Okay, okay. <laughs> Jet. Jet. You've seen, uh, have you seen, you've seen Django Unchained, right? Yes. He would totally be, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. That's who Calvin Candy is. That's who Calvin Candy yes. is. Oh, he, I didn't hear, I didn't hear Calvin Candy, dumbass. Yeah, I did. I did specifically say Calvagetti. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so he would very much be like very friendly, polite, but pull out the skull and be like, "And this is why Buggles are inferior." That is absolutely. <laughs> that is so on the point. That is so on point. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, being set in his ways means that he kind of sees his children more as tools more than like well children. And Mark DeRice's delivery when he gave that whole speech to Kari about, like, the nature of mages, 
it really gives a clear impression of how much faith this guy has in his cause, while also really make you making you want to see him get punched in the face. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> uh, but speaking of wanting to get punched in the face, boy howdy, Michael Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like I'm not I wasn't like too familiar with him before this because I'm not super good at keeping up with Canadian dubs, but he was easily my favorite villain performance of the whole show, and given the amount of villains in this show, that's really saying something. Uh, from the very second Zokin opens his mouth, you can pretty much tell he's bad news. And Michael Donovan just makes the guy sound like a total slimeball, oozing evil pretty much every second he's on screen. And it kind of helps that unlike, the, that unlike a lot of the other villains in this show who are, like, well, not necessarily conflicted, but they do kind of have, like, their own kind of weird moral standings. He's just very honest about how twisted he is. Like, he doesn't even lie. Like, straight about the lie. He's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm just in this mess with my side. I don't even care anymore. Like, here's the thing. <laughs> like, here's the thing. A lot of the villains in the show are very two-faced and multidimensional. The second you see Zokin, you see an evil, rotted taint of a fruit. And you're just like, yeah, this guy's bad news. The second. Evil, rotted taint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's very honest about how twisted he is, and while it makes him a little more one-dimensional than some of the other villains, he's also just very much a treat to watch. You can tell Michael Donovan was having a lot of fun with this guy. Uh, but anyway, all four of these performances were really great, and I honestly wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. And uh, and for and now we're going to move on to our next section, where we're going to change things up a bit, because we're not talking about Master Servants Bears. And uh, this time we're talking about a group of ladies, specifically three very important ladies in Kiritsu, Ki- in Kiritsugu's wife. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was five seconds away from saying Kiritsugu. God damn it. No. 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 I blame you. I blame you for this, Megan. Look. Look. <laughs> First of all, one, Kotomine, Kotomine doesn't want any pussy. He wants that dick. Uh, yes, that's very, very true. true. Okay, at least uh, in this show, extended universe Kotomina. I don't know what the fuck. He he's really okay. attracted to really spicy spicy foods. That's what I know. Anyways, uh, okay, okay. So anyway, uh, these three ladies we have: Maya Hisao, Iris Veal, Bond Eisberg, and Natalia. Did you ever tell? Uh, did you ever say what your your name for this group was? Yes, uh, the name for this group I read written down was Kiritsugu's Angels. I think that's very, <laughs> very fair. I'd also say, uh, our, I I'm really mad that we had we were originally going to record this on Skype, but it was giving me really weird like leveling problems. But I want to fuck, I want to fight whoever decided to make our chat name for the call Fate Zero We Go Again. Oh, you're still on about that? <laughs> yes, that was such a bad pun, and I don't know whether to be pissed or impressed. Yes. Can't you be both? I'm gonna, okay, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna arm bar your ass and on Wednesday. God damn it. Okay, um, so anyway, Maya is Kiritsuka's assistant and partner in mage hunting. Iris Veal is Kiritsuka's wife and daughter of the Eisberg family, who was married off to Kiritsugu, and it hopes that the Eisberg will obtain the Holy Grail. And lastly, Natalia was Kiritsugu's mentor, who taught him the ways of magecraft and assassination. Happy Mother's Day, bitch! <laughs> there's a there's a lot of complicated relationships with Kiritsugu and all three of these ladies. It's yeah. so. Do you think Natal? Do you think uh, Kiritsugu's favorite song is Rocket Man? No. <laughs> Uh, By the way, uh, I want uh, the I William wanna... Shatner version. Okay, hang on. 
comma, Rocket Man. Uh, I'll, actually, I'll let you not say who plays these characters before I propose a little theory of mine. Okay, uh, so playing Maya, we have Carrie Carradine. Uh, playing Irisville, we have Bridget Hoffman. And playing Natalia, we have good old Wendy Lee. Uh, Carrie Carradine, you would know as Casca from Berserk. Mommy Toboy from Prolamagi Madoka Magica. And Karka Issue from Bobosuit Gundamar Blooded Orphans. Uh, this is the first time we're talking about Bridget Hoffman on this show, but she's been around for a long time, and some of her other work includes Jerry Kato from Digimon Taters, Namine Yagiri from Dorarara, and Ryoko Asakura from the Melokani of Haruhi Suzumiya. And uh, as for Wendy Lee, we've talked about her a few times, and at this point she's literally been doing anime duds for longer than I've been alive. And some of her other work includes... Valentine from Cowboy Bebop, Dokoro in Blessing Angel Dokoro John, and Dorothy in March and Awakens Romance. I just went for the most obscure ones possible. That's right fair. Okay, <laughs> I, I was like, what are those? Anyways, uh, so where do we start? Okay. Anyways, uh, before I go into my thoughts on these voice performances, I want to propose a theory to you. So. How much you want to bet that there is some possibility that the strange relationship with Maya started because he saw something from Natalia in her? I can honestly kind of believe that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, no, it's it's just it's just something about that that relationship. It's just like she seems very familiar to Natalia. And I thought that was something interesting. I'm also trying to figure out if, like, the attraction is there in regards to, like, if it's mutual or if it's just something that Maya's into and he just doesn't stop her. I'm... Uh, uh, I, I lean toward the latter, personally. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's pretty ambiguous, but I lean towards the latter, yeah. Okay. But, yeah, uh, it's just... It's just something I thought that was interesting that I noticed. So, uh, starting off with Maya, Carrie Kiernan has a very interesting, stoic, badass voice, and I, she doesn't get to do much, but she gets to be very cool, menacing, as well as look good in a suit. There's a lot of ladies in the show that get to wear suits, I think that's pretty nifty. Um, and yeah... I she I think I have the least to say about her just because we don't go too much into her. All we know is that she's a child of war who was picked up by Kiritsugu and then kind of like it's like the cycle from Natalia to him to her. It's like a cycle of apprenticeship with strange undertones in their relationships. And going to Natalia, Wendy Lee is really cool and badass as Natalia. She's really interesting. She's only there for like two episodes, but her presence is very notable from like this big sister mother character. And the final phone call between the two of them, which I actually wasn't sure at first if she was aware that like Kiritsugu was going to do it. But it seems very clear at the end, she kind of knew the entire time, and she sort of accepted, I'm not getting out of this, I just want to talk to you and kind of let it all out in the open before you put me down. And that's heartbreaking. Gosh damn, is it heartbreaking. And Irisville, Bridget Hoffman. Irisville is basically the actual master of Saber throughout this entire show. Pretty Let's be much. real here. 
Yeah. Kiritsugu's whole yeah. thing is that he's just working in the shadows. He's mainly master in name and by command seals alone, but Irisville is the actual partner master in this relationship. And I think that's really interesting. What I also find compelling is her genuine sweetness, but also the fact that, like, by all intents and purposes, they are day and night in regards to their relationship together. But they're... Who? I, uh, Kiritsu, Kiritsu and Irisville? Kiritsu and Irisville, yeah. Someone will die. A fun! Basically. <laughs> base God, they are... Fr they, God, that is absolutely that relationship to a T. Fuck. But, yeah, no, it's just... It's the kind of thing I didn't think would work, but also, it's I do genuinely think they did love each other. Like, th there's some debate about, they don't show him mourning her, but it's very clear from the beginning, she was always going to become the cup and lose herself. And they kind of both seem to have made peace with that. And I find that really interesting and tragic but i do find their relationship really interesting and compelling bridget hoffman has this very princess-like sweetness and authoritiveness to her like she herself is not pushy or but she herself is very sweet and authoritative and when she asserts her power and her dominance like she she tries to own the situation when she's dealing with all these other masters especially when she has that deal when it comes to dealing with uh tokiyomi she asserts a lot of power and it's tragic and when she does like confront Kirei Kotomine, it's really interesting how even in her final moments, she's talking down to him. Also, when she's talking to Kiritsugu as the cup, it's heartbreaking. God. Mm. But yes, these are three very different, very complicated women in Kiritsugu's life, and all of them are very interesting, and it's actually really interesting seeing her and Maya interact, which I think is very, yeah. very weird, but I totally buy... That it's like she does she doesn't like the relationship, but she accepts that this is he loves her. Also, at the end, we confirms that even in if he had to choose, he would still choose Irisfield over Maya. Which don't tell Maya, but thank God she's already dead. She doesn't have to know. Yeah, yeah. All three of them it's did fate. good job. It happens. Man, there's just like a bunch of NTR teams. Like I said, fate the NTR. the hidden theme of the show is twisted love. Tainted love. Got to, da, da, taint, the way I've got to, save the world. I shot my mother and cried my full of zombies. Okay, okay, let's move on. Oh my god, how long are we? This is gonna be a big episode, guys. Yeah, we're almost done. I figured that's why I wanted to start at seven. Yeah, we're almost done, though. We're getting there. Okay. We're getting there. Uh, no, so, fun fact, I watched the first five episodes of this show with my mom. And the first time she saw Maya, and she she knew that Iris Vale and uh, Kiritsugu were married. So when she saw Maya kiss Kiritsugu, my mom's like, who's that slut? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just kind of, like, shrugged at her. I'm like, bitch, I don't know. We're watching this together. That's amazing. Okay. My mom knows. Uh, but no, I liked I liked Carrie Keenan as Maya. It kind of reminded me a lot of like proto Satsuki from Kill the Kill. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, or 
or at least the Satsuki that is not like who is putting on the face to be the head of uh the school. Yeah. Or I I can't remember what the fucking school in Kill Me Kill. Hanoji Academy. Okay, there we go. Hanoji Academy, thank you. Um, so, I, I genuinely enjoyed it, and she does not waver in her performance. Like, Maya does not know what joy is as a concept. Mm-hmm. And it just stays. And it is very surreal. Like, it is this very surreal, emotionless soldier character. And I'm just like, I got you there. I got you, Maya. Uh, Wendy Lee was really impactful for the two episodes that she's in. Um, she kind of plays that very charismatic mage hunter who is very much, I think, suppressing how she really feels about Kiritsugu. Um, fun fact, like, the first time you actually hear Kiritsugu, I think, openly cry in the entire show is when he shoots down the plane. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, uh. just shot through the heart he's also crying when he's holding a dead maya in his arms which further proves my theory of maya is a pseudo natalia replacement or, or he the is other way around, probably. or he is he's the natalia he's no he's the natalia to right. maya Ooh. and he failed her mm. and he let his daughter die essentially because once we get to Kiritsugu, we'll learn that Kiritsugu basically loses everything. So... Yeah. Um, uh, and then, Eriesville. Oh, God. This is weird to say. I think Eriesville's performance is really good. I just don't know if it ever really settled with me. I always felt like Bridget Hoffman had this very, like, unplaceable slight accent to her voice. Mm. As Eries Vale. And it just didn't feel like it belonged to any country. So it bothered me. Because she has a very, like, breathy way of speaking. And very noble and very regal. Until she obviously becomes the great. Yeah. And when she becomes the girl, that is some straight-up Evangelion horror shit. Oh, yeah. Um, just a bunch of Eriesville clones just, like, reaching for her in tiny little babby hands. Yeah. It's like, this is only the second most terrifying thing in the show behind the fucking worm dungeon. Yeah. Number three is Glub Glub. (laughs) Number four is Glub Glub's basement. (laughs) Yeah. Um... But just, I really like Eurisville's character, and I like Bridget Hoffman's performance. It just, it just didn't sit with me very well. It's like, it's like you ate something that's really good, but there's just like something that just doesn't satisfy you about it. And I think it's this that I kept hearing the teeniest accent. Okay. And I don't know if it's there or not. And I could be high, because when I mention, I'm like, so does Bridget Hoff, does Irisville speak with an accent? Elia on the chat were just kind of like, no. But I, I, I enjoyed all three of them. I really, I kind of am really sad that Maya died, because I would have liked to see her, like, be in the next Grail War for UBW, but obviously she's not, mm. so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um. I. I guess I will. Um. I guess I'll start with Eilis Veal. So I really like the fact that she sort of had like the bubbly personality, sort of 
contrasting everything around her. Like, everything in the show is so dark and negative. And she's like this one little bright spot. She's also, having... I love I love the moment when she's driving the car. I forgot yeah. about that. Like, e like everything memeable about the, the car driving scene. It, like, that was just great. And, like, it, it really sounds like she's having a lot of fun with everything going on around her and it, it sounds like Bridget Hoffman had a lot of fun with the performance uh that said I actually remember the first trailer Anaplex put out for Fate Zero back when it was announced for Neon Alley like oh yeah, oh yeah Neon Alley was a thing and mm -hmm. like Bridget Hoffman's performance and the the like line or two she gets in that trailer sounded so rough and I, I wasn't sure I was actually going to like it, and then I actually... <laughs> and then one thing led to another, and I blind-bought the series. And, you know, I, I watched through it the first time, and, like, it actually started to grow on me. And, Megan, you're not exactly wrong with that feeling that was there sort of something Bridget Hoffman put, in the, put into her voice for the, for the performance... Like, because I'm not sure either. There was, like, maybe it was just sort of that stage wonkiness of the script. But yeah, there there was just something I couldn't place in her performance. So, you're not alone. And then, like, the, the, the creepy stuff of the Grail. Yeah. Uh, so, Maya and, uh, and Carrie. Like, I, I really liked it and... She really conveyed her sort of loyalty to uh, Kiritsugu and, like, sort of the detachment syndrome. Because she, she was basically a child of war. And she, she just sort of has that cold detachment from stuff she feels she has to do for the sake of, like, the people she cares about. Like, she could completely dissociate herself from, like sniping someone from a building away and i i really like that in that performance um because she really doesn't have much except in the like two episodes i don't remember much of wendy lee as natalia to tell the truth um i i know she played it really well as sort of the like kind of mature like mentor to Kiritsugu and then I also remember the plane scene but that's that's about it but I know she did a really great job so yeah okay okay um so also in Maya since like I feel like she weirdly kind of had the least to do with these three despite the amount of screen time she had uh but I liked her and I liked Terry Karen's performance uh Maya's clearly supposed to come off as very kind of cold and distant and you can feel that in Carrie's portrayal of her uh, but you can also tell that there's, you know, like, a little bit more lie beneath the surface. I feel like Maya's and, character as a whole is the most read-the-light-novel character in this series. Probably, yeah. Mm, probably. Uh, but, like I was saying, you can tell that there's something lying beneath the surface, and it comes out when we learn more about her history with Kiritsugu, and also through some of her interactions with Iris View in particular, where... That where, when she's with her, she comes off and look a little bit more gentle than when she's with everyone else, and I thought that was a really effective little touch where, I mean, where, where you can tell, like, she does have this kind of, where she does actually have this nice little bit of respect for her, and I thought that was really interesting. And, um, 
Speaking of my reveal, I will also admit that I wasn't super big on Bridget Hoffman's performance back in the day, since it felt a little rough around the edges to me back then. And uh, while it still does in some areas, I appreciate it now a lot more than it did when I first watched it. Uh. Mm-hmm. Um, Iris Field is supposed to come up as, you know, like kind of naive and innocent in a sense, and Bridget Hill handles that aspect of the character fairly well. Uh, but it's also very apparent that Iris Field is also, you know, very insightful and always aware of what her role in the battle is supposed to be. And I think it's in those more like serious moments where Bridget's performance kind of shines through the most for me. And I think, and one of my favorite scenes with her was that whole bit where she's like chastising Kirichugu for keeping his intentions unclear to Saber, like, you know, after he does DM read dirty. I really like that whole thing. I like how she isn't afraid to speak her mind just because, like, they're like hubby and wife or something like that. She's like, no, you deserve to give her something after that. It's like, yeah. I, but even then, she'll still, she's still always in his corner, and like, even in death, She's basically shitting on Kotomine, and I love that. I respect that. Yeah. Bless you. Yeah, and... Also, uh, unrelated thing. I really like the second ending. It just kind of tells the story of how their relationship sort of takes off. It, it's very yeah. subtle, but you get just enough of it to see how it starts out as this sort of like, what the hell's going on here, to finding out you're, you care for her, bonding time with her, and then being vulnerable, and basically the one shot of him breaking down crying at night as she just holds him, and I think that's just really effective. These two made a child. They did make a child. Yeah. yeah. Uh... I wonder if he was ribbed for her pleasure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Look, look, so look. In my, oh, look. Let's put it like this. He had ribs removed, so he was probably a little bit flexible with his neck. Yeah. So what you're saying is, do you think Kiritsugu can suck his own dick? I'm saying Kiritsugu yeah. can. I'm saying Kiritsugu can, in theory, suck his own dick. Yay! Um, so, okay, so continuing on, I also know the show was, like, kind of ambiguous as to uh, whether or not Maya Kutsuku had some kind of secret thing going on, but I get the impression that Irishville probably knew that Maya liked Kutsuku and just didn't feel, like, particularly threatened by it because, you know, the whole I'm going to become a better for the grail thing. And, uh, lastly, for, Natalia, for Wendy Lee as Natalia, uh, she wasn't in the show as much as the other two, but she left quite a big impact, and Wendy Lee being, well, Wendy Lee had pretty much zero problems playing up the whole cool female assassin thing. You know, since he's not really sure to doing that at this point. Uh, but at the same time, she was also able to get across the slightly more compassionate side of Natalia that we only really get to see in her final moments. And uh, while, like, with Kyle Hibbert's Westwatch, she only had, like, that one major scene to really sell us on her character... Yeah, she handled that scene beautifully, and I almost teared up when I rewatched the show, mm. honestly. And, um, yeah, these three ladies did a fine job, and while I still can't say I rate Bridget Hoffman's performance among my favorites in the show, I appreciate its place in the ensemble a lot more now, and I got a lot more enjoyment out of it in my rewatch than in the first time around. Mm. Okay, and um, with that, we are heading into our three, into our final three pairs, the most important. Basically... The kings and their concubines. Yep. And, Excuse uh, me, don't you talk about Waver fucking Velvet like that. Yep, okay, yep. 
it is time to talk about the real heroes of the story, Waver Velvet and Ryder, a.k.a. Iskandar. The best characters. Yeah! The best. <laughs> the best characters. Yeah. Uh, so- Editors, uh, note to the editor, it is at this point, if you can get the track, you are my king to start exactly now. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay, uh, so Waver Velvet is a young mage without a long family lineage. And decides to join the Holy Grail War and then attempts to be taken more seriously. As for Iskandar, uh, Megan, would you give us a lowdown, please? Cool, sure. So Iskandar is actually the Eastern name for Alexander the Great, who is considered to be the greatest military tactician of all time, who was born on July, who they believe was to be born on July 21st or 22nd, and lived until June 10th or June 11th, who died at the age of only 32. Despite having a very short life by our time, Alexander the Great was the student of Aristotle and the king of Macedonia. Uh, known for assuming his throne at the age of 20, he was known for the largest military conquest and creating the largest mo- the largest ancient empire in the world only by the age of 30 that stretched from Greece to northwest India. Historically, Alexander the Great was known to have never lost a battle in search for quote-unquote the end of the world and the great outer sea. Which I believe it's called o- Okanos. Okeanos. Yeah, Okeanos. Thank. I can't speak Greek, guys. Okeanos. However, he died after the, a victory over the Par, uh, Paravasian people in the Battle of Hypotes, and passed away in Babylon at the age of 32 because his men were essentially homesick. So he he literally gave up his quest for his own men. Wow. Mm. Uh, his legacy includes upwards of 20 cities named for him, most uh, most importantly the city of Alexandria in uh, Egypt. He also caused cultural diffusion and syncretism, bringing together and blending cultures under one band, under one banner, spreading Greek culture which results in, in the Hellenistic civilization. To this day, Alexander the Great is studied for his military tactics and influence. Essentially, Looking into the fate lore, a lot of this stuff kind of seems very similar, but what they use specifically in Fate Zero is essentially his charisma and tactics and his ability to bring the best out of people. Uh, his noble phantasms include the Gordius Wheel, which essentially is that I guess they believed him to be the son of the Greek god Zeus. It's a it's a lightning chariot, stole, basically. It's a lightning chariot. Um the bulls which Ryder calls the children of Zeus were originally an offering from Zeus to King Gordius, but Alexander claimed them by cutting the Gordian knot with his sword. Uh, the reputation of this act apparently defined him. That's why he's in the Ryder class. Mm. Okay. Uh, and his other noble phantasm is uh, Ioni Ionian Hetiroi. Fuck, I can't speak. Etonian Hetiroi, which essentially is his is essentially described by uh, Tokiomi to be the only thing that will rival another assert, the servant we're talking about next is Noble Phantasm. It basically sends you to a reality marvel, a reality marvel, essentially an alternate plane that embodies Alexander the Great's dreams and philosophies as kings, and the bonds formed with his subjects in life uh, sublimated as his Noble Phantasm. Basically, like how- you get sent to another dimension where he throws his old bag army at you. <laughs> yeah, and it's fucking cool as shit. And by the way, if you look really close the first time they summon it in episode 10, 
you can see an older version of Waver as one of them. Yes, Lord Elmoloy. Lord Elmoloy the second. That's great. Uh, Okay, so uh, playing Waver Velvet, we have Lucian Dodge, who you would know as Taku Maizumi in Excel World, Zoe Sight in the V's Redub of Sailor Moon, and Blue from Pokemon Origins. And for his Kandar, we have one Jameson Price, who you would know as Chad from Bleach, Lord Jano from Gurren Lagann, and believe it or not, Kiri Kotamine in the 2016 version of Fate Sailor. <laughs> 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 He's also my favorite samurai husband, Kurisu from Kabarari. Oh, I, I forgot. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay. Yeah, that just... he was the original. Ki- wow. I mean, hey man, I've watched. I've watched Davis and Price be be suave in Moe. I've watched Gobinari. Okay. <laughs> How do you do, fellow samurai? Okay. So let's start. Uh, first off, Lucian Dodge as Waver. Waver really is a character that I think comes the most into his own, just because he starts the show effectively being a little brat. And grows much more... Like, he does... He effectively steals the thing from Archibald to spite him. Because he's an asshole. And... I mean, what do you... I mean, fair enough. But even then, it's like... He does that out of spite. And, like, he is very much a bookworm guy. Who is very serious and studious. Who himself does not really know much of the world. He knows about magic, and he is still a fresh mage, but what? and you pair him with uh, Iskandar, he really grows into his own person as somebody who respects him, somebody who respects the life that he lived and wants to live his life. By the end of the series, he he wants to take time away from his studies to see the world, to explore the world, to learn more about himself and develop as a person and that's so interesting and lucian dodge brings out like this kind of brattiness but also this sincerity this vulnerability and when he does show his strength and come up to bat he really gets those moments across too there's just something about him as waver that just works perfectly speaking of perfect jameson price as the king is uh, the king of conquerors is Skandar is one of the greatest greatest characters in this show. Jameson Price also probably being one of the best performances in this show just because he is larger than life. Also, that man is like at most thirty two. God damn the fucking biceps on him! Like he could basically like curl his arms and break a watermelon. He could bench Bill Clinton. He could bench Bill Clinton easily. There's not even a contest. But yeah, no. I love Ryder's character. I love Iskandar's character. And just... They are such very different people that bring out the best in each other. Like, I love love that exchange. Like, when he... He gets so interested in the world around him. Like, he's not like, the world was different the way I was. He's like... This is so interesting. This is so new. Look at all these things. Look at this tiny box. Look at this man who thinks he's a king. I can beat the shit out of him. <laughs> but also, like... Fuck this bitch-ass white But he's boy. also, like, 
wears a t-shirt from a limited edition video game. I love that exchange where he's like, Hey, Waver, I bought a video game. You- Wait, can I- can we okay. do this? You wanna be- Hey! I'll be- no, I wanna okay. be a Skandar. Hey, I bought a video you game. You idiot, what's the point of buying software if you don't have the hardware? You take me for a bitch-ass casual boy? Got that shit too! Now let us go play! God, that's such a... I, that is like the worst Jameson Price impression, I'm sorry I'm not whack. But da by the way, I'd like to point out that Andrew can actually do a semi decent solution dodge. Oh yeah, yeah that, was, that was actually really good. <laughs> you, you know what, that doesn't make me happy. I don't care about you guys right now. You think I, I appreciate yet? Whatever. And now you ruined Okay. It. <laughs> Respect my Nordy. I don't. Cartman would also be in the writer. Class. I don't need this right now, but I I appreciate the 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 praise. Anyways, no, but I love this character. Boy, it's just what? Nothing. It just there's something. This is like he reminds me of what I saw between that moved me so much about uh, Izuku and All Might's relationship with one another. And I see a lot of that dynamic in regards to both Waver and Ryder. And I think that's a very similar parallel in that Ryder is a larger-than-life dreamer. He is a king. He fights for his people with his people. He, he the, the exchange of his view of being a king is that he has to be stronger, wiser, and rasher than everybody else so his servants will think he's larger than life and want to follow him. And they do. And the respect he commands, the power he wields, even the biggest shithead in the entire show at the very end acknowledges his might and shows respect for him. Jameson Price is so good at showing the the majesty, the power, the strength, and the emotion that Ryder conveys, and it's beautiful. I love these characters, and I think Lucian Dodge and Jameson Price are perfect. Okay, Megan? There is nothing bad I could ever say about Lucian Dodge's waiver or Jameson Price as Iskandar. Like, they are bar- This is bar none, two of the most perfect performances ever put to an English dub. Wow. Like, yeah, yeah, I have to agree. They are fucking perfect. Like, there was no moment of, like, hesitation as somebody who has never watched this show. Like, as somebody who went into the show almost blind, the only thing I'm ever told is Waverney Skandar are the best characters in the show. That's it. So they had a lot to live up to. And they did. And I love every second of it. I am like, not a lot in this show almost brought me to tears. But their, like, final moments, like, their final 15 minutes together fucking almost killed me. Just Jesus fucking Christ. Like, I don't know how to explain how it's so good. It's, Lucian just goes on such a journey with Waver and it's, it's helped by in itself that the show writes Waver as such a redeemable, endearing character, despite at the very beginning that he's kind of doing a lot of like semi awful shit, like hypnotizing people and killing chickens, but and being a thief. 
but and he's such kind of this bratty little child but lucian never goes to like snotty whiny child with him like he never goes like full like randall from recess Mm. voice (laughs) and he lets he lets his voice grow and get more confident as a person as waver gets to grow up and by the end of that journey you're just like yeah fuck yeah waver but god jameson price just Iskandar just leaves such an impression on you as a person. Like, even if you don't like anime, I think if you just described Iskandar and his actions and his personality, he's just such a well-written character. And he's such... Like... I just fucking love it. it. It's perfect to me. There is nothing I can say. It's perfect. You know what you can say? Master or not... You are uh, still my friend, still my friend, and always will be. And always will be. I am not. I am not his master. I'm his retainer. Nope. That fucking almost drove me to Get tears. A little misty here. And just Jesus, like legitimately, if you if you know nothing about fate, or if you don't have any desire to watch anything other than fate, watch the fight between Archer and Ryder at the end of Zero. All the way through for some of the best dialogue between two people you'll ever see. Isca- Iskandar tonight is less than perfect, and thus far perfect. greater than perfection that itself. Perfect ev- will ever be. That was so good. Just- God, it's so fucking good! Go ahead. Okay, um, first and foremost, Waver and Ryder should have been the main protagonists of this show. I don't agree... Like, but I here's yeah. the thing for what the show needed to be I they needed not to be the main characters I think they needed to be witnesses to all of this and they need here's a here's a, oh before we go on I need to say something interesting here's the thing about the Holy Grail War the Holy Grail War has very specific rules and things that you can and cannot do here's the thing about the Holy Grail War it is ripe for exploitation and breaking the rules. Waver and Ryder are the only master-servant duo in the entirety of Fate Zero that never once break the rules. This is true. (laughs) Okay, well then maybe if not, you know, they should be the protagonists of Fate Zero. They, like, they need their own thing. I need, like... You know, the the cooking with Shiro Emiya show, but with, like, Ryder and Waver as roommates. Or maybe, or maybe you can have, like, a reverse of, like, the older Waver and the younger Iskandar. Yeah, because, like, they actually do a, uh, there's actually a manga series about Lord Elmoloy II as, like, a magical detective, and he's just a shithead. That sounds dumb, but and... I kind of want to read that now. But okay, and, like, if Ryder were in there, it would it would make it even better. But anyway, um, like in the dub, they are like the perfect duo. Jameson Price and Lucian Dodge like play off of each other perfectly, and Jameson Price plays off of the other servants perfectly. Like ev- just about everyone he encounters, from like Caster to Berserker to like. 
he's one of the few people who actually legit respects Saber. Even though, to, to the point where... He respects her as a warrior. Right. Not point, as a king. But he pities her. But he pities her right. fate. The, and I, I want to point that out, that, like, even if he pitied her fate, he never talked down to her other than at the, the thing of kings to shatter her fate. Other than that, Iskandar treated her with such respect. Which is... And I appreciate that as a... Like, I appreciate that because when he kind of broke her down, I thought Iskandar was going to be a sexist prick and he never was. And I fucking He, he honored her, her, honored her spirit and like he was sad about her fate, but he respected her as a foe and a warrior, which is the exact opposite you could say about Gilgamesh because he sees her being sad once and he's like, ooh, I'm gonna tap that. Yeah, like, for the most part, except for, like, the truly despicable servants, like, Ryder has a respect for, like, each of his opponents, and he, he will fight honorably to the end, and, like, it, it's just great, and Waver, like, he's, he starts out as, like, a little brat, but he grows up through the course of the series, like, they... The two of them probably get the most character development out of, like, any of the Master-Servant combinations. Mm. Just sheer character development. These two are, like... At least character development that doesn't break them or turn them into terrible people. Right. I if anything, it makes Waver a better person. In the yeah. End. But, um, yeah, it's... In terms of, like... Duos of dub actors. This is probably one of my favorites, like, ever. Uh, Indeed. So, like, there, I, I could just heap praise on this for the next two hours, but I'm going to pass it on to Jet. Okay. Alright, um... So, if you follow me on Dub Talk or Twitter for any extended period of time, you would know that for a long time I've been advocating that Lucian Dodd needs to be in a leading role in an anime dub. Uh, sadly, that hasn't happened yet, but this, alongside his role in the Excel World Dub, were two of the very first things I had ever heard of him. And his work here in particular really impressed me, and it's kind of what started that whole little crusade. Um, he gives off this, like, genuine sense of, like, floppiness, I guess, where Waver puts on, like, an air of confidence, where he pretends like he's really full of himself, like he's all of that, but in reality, he's, like, very timid. And uh, both angles come across really well just about every aspect of Lucy's delivery. And Waver's character arc where he goes from being this guy who's like really desperate to prove his worth and is obviously pretty bratty to, you know, learning to believe in himself a lot more. It's frankly the most optimistic thing we ever see in this show. And uh, that growth and maturity is reflected in Lucy's performance where you can really feel a higher sense of confidence in his tone by the end of the show. And as for Jameson Price's writer, honestly, anything I say really can't do this with justice. Um, I've been aware of Jameson Price for a long time. Even before this show came out, I knew who he was thanks to watching like, some mid-2000s dubs like Bad Dread and whatnot. Um, however, even for as many characters as he's done at this point, whenever I think of Jameson Price as an actor, this one role, without exception, is always the very first thing that comes to mind for me. Iskandar is supposed to be a character that's larger than life, and Jameson Price's sake on him modestly feels like it's larger than the universe itself. And every second Iskandar comes on screen, Jameson Price's performance is just bursting 
through the season energy and it never lets up. Everything about it just gives off this air of both extreme confidence and also extreme sincerity where Iskander is going to absolutely do whatever he wants, but he's also so always going to be very honest about what he wants, even when it gets him into like kind of hairy situations. And of course he also knows when to like dial it down and be serious, which I appreciated for Darius and Price's performance. And he handles Iskander's like very few quiet moments just as well, well as all of his loud ones. Um, so this is a performance where it feels like every act of Jameson Price's heart and soul was poured into it, and honestly, he pretty much is this character to me. But fun as these two performances are, though, what really made them stand out was just how well they played off of each other. Like, the chemistry between Lucian Dodge's wishy-washy waiver and Jameson Price's, like, supremely confident Iskandar is just so natural that from the very first moment these characters meet, it feels like you could just watch a show that's really, honestly, just about them talking to each other. Mm. And it's incredibly easy to see how these two kind of transition from being a sort of awkward pair to Iron Ford's friends. And that whole scene where Iskandar pretty much be where Waver, my bad, Waver becomes Iskandar's honorary vassal. Yeah, that whole bit pretty much broke my heart into pieces. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed watching these two together. So much so that I'd say that they probably make for one of my favorite voice acting duos in pretty much any anime dub. And yeah, these two are easily like the best performances of the stuff to be bar none. So yeah. they are also probably the best people in sh- in the show. So it's only yeah. f- let's get to the fucking let's worst. Let's get to the absolute scum. <laughs> yes. Uh. yes. Okay. Yes, we got to be happy for a moment now. It's dark times ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Let's meet the man with the world's itchiest asshole and the world's worst gay awakening. Yep. yep, so now we move on. Yep, so we move on for the true heroes of the story to the main villains of the story. Kirei Kotomine and Archer. Boo! <laughs> and Archer, aka Gilgamesh. Uh, Kirei Kotomine is a priest from the Holy Church who is brought into the Holy Grail War in order to assist Tokiomi in obtaining the Grail and becomes his apprentice in Magecraft. As for Gilgamesh, how about you take this one, Roots? Yeah, so there is actually a lot to the myth of Gilgamesh. It is believed that Gilgamesh was actually a real king who ruled the, uh, the Sumerian city-state of Uruk. And it was believed it was sometime between, like, 2500 BCE and 2800 BCE. That's about all we know, like, from historical record. But this man is basically the Sumerian Hercules. Like, he... He was a... uh, According to mythology, he was a demigod. And That's why he's technically still in this game. In this game, you can't have gods. Demigods are fair game. Right, right, right. That it becomes an important fact in a later series. But um, he would basically do trials just because. And um, he also had a quote-unquote confidant named Enkidu, who was a basically a wild man when the two first met. That he that Gilgamesh quote-unquote, tamed. But, um... (laughs) uh, During... During Gilgamesh's... One of Gilgamesh's many quests, Enkidu died. 
and Gilgamesh went on a long journey to find the secret of immortality. And he basically found the Sumerian equivalent of Noah, who had survived a great flood. And asked him for the secret of immortality, which apparently there isn't any. And instead he was given an elixir that would basically restore youth to somebody. And Gilgamesh had intended to use this to uh, revive Enkidu. But a snake ended up stealing the elixir and shed its skin for the first time. Which is, in fact, the, the crafting material that was used to summon Gilgamesh into the Holy Grail War. The, the first skin shed by a snake. Um, in terms of fate mythology, um, like, a lot of that is, like, Enkidu, I, I couldn't find anything in, like, fate lore. He is another servant. He right. is actually a servant. In, in fate grand order, which, honestly, let's be real, everybody's and, a servant in that. Yeah. He's in another one, too, but I forget what class he's in. I want to say he's, like, berserker or caster. But, um... Gilgamesh basically maintains his smugness, and that is personified through his noble phantasm, the, the Gate of Babylon, which he uses to, sort, to store all of the treasures he obtains in his conquests. It's basically a never-ending weapons locker. Right, and that's basically it. So, Jet, who plays these two? Okay. Alright, so playing Gilgamesh, we have David Ernest, who has done such other roles as the narrator from Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, Senketsu from Kill a Kill, and Vod of the Dawn from Gun X Sword. And playing Kirei, and weirdly enough, this is somehow the very first time we have ever got to talk about this particular actor on this podcast. It's Christopher Freeman, y'all. Holy <laughs> shit, Christopher Freeman, get out of my bedroom! <laughs> <laughs> Well played. Stop yelling at me, Crispin! <laughs> uh, I don't know why I'm blooping so great. Okay, uh, so Crispin Freeman, you would know for such roles as Itachi Uchiha from the Naruto franchise, Alucard from Helsing Ultimate, Keon from the Melancholy of Hari Susumiya, and Sume from Wolf's Reign. Man, where do I start? Fuck, okay, uh... This episode is going to be really fucking long, and we're sorry. Well, to be honest, it's a classics episode, and that's kind of expected, but, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, uh, starting off, let's start with Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is a piece of shit. Uh, that's the short version. The long version is David Vincent does a really good job making him sound very, like, authoritative, holier-than-thou, and I do enjoy his smarminess, though I definitely think it feels like he needed... This was a character I feel like I think needed to cheese it up a little bit more. Just because he needed, like, he has the arrogance. Everything about him is arrogance. It just feels like, I would say he's playing it straight. But let's be honest, playing anything with Gilgamesh is anything but. But, um, I, I, I think it was just like, it needs a little more smarm. Or it needs a little more, like, twirly mustacheness, if that makes any sense. But even then, I still think David does a really solid job at making the punchability of Gilgamesh come to life. And just so sure and holier than thou. Speaking of holy, oh my god, Crispin Freeman. This man can read the Bible. 
and I would listen to it. And guess what? He reads a passage from the Bible, and I listen to it, and it's great. But the development from basically good little Catholic boy to slowly discovering that he's actually kind of a sadistic psychopath. You and listen all... to Slayer Daddy's once. little sadist. You listen to Slayer once. You 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 take you take a fruit from the Garden of Babylon once, and you realize I kind of like ruining people's lives. You take a lick from the Gate of Booty Lawn once. <laughs> Look, uh, come on, we all know, we all know that Power Bottom Gilgamesh would totally get Kyrie Kotomina to eat his ass. Of course he would! Gilgamesh, if Gilgamesh tells you to do something, you do it, no questions asked. <laughs> when Gilgamesh tells you to suck his dick, you get down on your knees and ask how hard. See, that's, that's the thing with Gilgamesh. He just sort of expects things to be done for him. That's why he is a bottom. He's, he just lies there and he just, like... You know you're gonna. There's no fighting this. That's what makes him so creepy, and that's what makes him so diabolical when he's just like, Oh, Saber, I can't wait for you to be in my bed. You remind me of all the virgins I've bedded in my life. And... You're hot when you're crying. Oh, God, he's so, like, he's straight up would... I have, I have this, I have what you exactly okay. said. And it was, and okay, I the, quote, the, the, I hold on. the context is after, after she uses Excalibur to kill Caster and Ryder and Archer are having a discussion. Do I get to be Ryder? Do I get to be Ryder yes, again you for can. this? I cannot acknowledge her because she was not the one who lived life and chose this path. It was a path thrust, thrust upon her. It is a fate, is a fate far too true. And Gilgamesh is just like, yeah, isn't it fucking hot? Dude, you're weird. <laughs> Which is basically just Gilgamesh. But no, back to Kotomine. God, what an evil, psycho-sadistic fucker who just slowly discovers himself. And he's got so much, like, he sounds so stoic and cold and badass. But God, when he starts getting glee, when he starts discovering, I'm really interested in Kyrie because... I want to ruin his life. It's so fun. I wanted to see the world burn, and I did. It's great. I'm having such a good time right now. He's... Now put on this cloak and let's go home. Also, you have to be a real freak to straight up give your give the daughter of the man you killed the weapon you killed her with. <laughs> oh, yeah! That's right! <laughs> what a freak. Yeah. And Crispin Freeman... At his funeral! At his funeral, at by his the funeral, way! At his funeral. But yeah, no, Crispin Freeman is so diabolically manipulative, crazy, and evil. I love it. If our last pair was on perfect sync, it would be utter perfection. This pair has one really, really good half and one kind of disappointing half. Let's start with the really good half. Kyrie Kotomine, as played by Crispin Freeman... Holy shit, this man could read the phone book in that sadistic-ass voice, and you would be enthralled. Mm hmm And he is such, like... There is, like, this aspect to him that, like, we keep making jokes about a guy having a gay awakening. This is a man who has a awakening into, like, I don't want to say sin because being gay is not a sin. 
this is a man who awakens to a part of him he didn't know he had. And I think one of the uh one of the most like profound moments in this show is when after his dad has been killed by Archibald and Gilgamesh shows up and he goes, "You're mad you didn't get to do it yourself." <laughs> and it just kind of rocks him to the core and he's just like, "You know what? Fuck yeah." And that's why and that's why he says, I think he says uh when Tokiomi thinks that he booked the tickets out of Japan at Irisvale's demand, he goes, you know, I see you as a bit of a father figure to me. Mm. And then just stabs him in the back. <laughs> and he is just so self, like, self-righteous glee and indentation. He is, like, you have to play this character larger than life. Like, you cannot be reserved playing a character this fucking evil in a Shakespearean tragedy. Which is why Gilgamesh is a disappointment. It is not a bad performance in any way, shape, or tone. It's a really good performance. It was missing something. And that was sexual charisma. Do go on. Try to think of the actor's name right now, and it's David. David. David Vincent. David Vincent. David Vincent's a fine actor. He really is, and he does a good job playing Gilgamesh. But you need to make Gilgamesh talk in a way that is, this man is eternally suns out, cock out. Not guns out, just his dick is on the table. 24-7. Like... He does not, like, legitimately, the best definition of Gilgamesh as a character is his final, like, one of the final shots you see him sitting buck-ass naked on a pile of rubble. As he watches the world burn. The world burn. And I, sometimes I just didn't feel that sexual magnetism from him. Which is weird because Gilgamesh is this this great seducer slime ball, And that aspect was just kind of missing from me. And it's just like there are some scenes where he really needed to punch it up and meet um, Crispin's energy level, like where they're talking about after Assassin is actually killed off, about how if this is why you uh, in Holy Grail Wars masters get killed because if a master is waiting and another master dies but that servant wants to remain, they can just latch on to a new master. And that's obviously him planting the seed for, hey, you should kill Tokiomi and take me as your servant, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And it just felt like he was reading it Shakespearean, but he wasn't putting enough oomph into it. Other than that, I think it's a really good performance. It was just kind of letting down in the sexual charisma part. What you're saying is, what you're saying is... It was drier than Ryder's Ionian Hitairoi in regards to the sex appeal. I mean, Gilgamesh as a character wouldn't, like, even aesthetically, he's actually not that pretty to me. Like, I'm not gonna lie, I think Iskandar is better looking than Gil. Ooh, but I agree, but still. You look. Gilgamesh just doesn't do it for me. I. Anyway, go on. I say that as I now pass this over to my boyfriend. 
Yeah, it's okay. Who thankfully thankfully op- puts up with me openly <laughs> confessing about my love of hot and an- hot anime men and women. All right. Um, it's actually kind of interesting that you bring up um, Gilgamesh's lack of like sexual charisma, because that's that's actually kind of something I like about the performance. Because like all this bravado, and he's still kind of an empty shell. Like he he's building himself up. But ultimately, like, there's there's not a lot to him, and like that that's actually something I really appreciate. And um, Crispin Freeman, though, like, yeah, that's like, like his his sort of evil awakening is just the best. Where he where he stabs uh, what's his name in the back? I listen, Tokyo uh, Toki- Tokiomi. Uh, Tokiomi. Tokiomi. Okay, Recep Tokiomi in the back. Like, that that was just so good. And, like, and especially... I never bought that plane ticket. <laughs> and especially toward the end with his, um, with his final confrontation with Kirei, like, that was also really good. And, like, Gilgamesh basically, like, at the end, like, yeah, hey, you're stuck with me for life, buddy. Because uh, the Holy Grail fucked him up. And it's just like, yeah, this is, I, I, I really like these two. I do admit that there is a little something missing from Gilgamesh, but to me, like the lack of sexual charisma actually builds a little bit toward the character, but like there, there is a little something else, like some other form of bravado that I can't put my finger on is missing, but it's not there. So, yeah. Like, I actually like these two more than I thought I would. Okay, so I guess it's my turn now. Okay, so like Liam O'Brien, Crispin Freeman is one of my favorite voice actors, and there's just a natural sense of presence to his voice, and I can be entertained just hearing the man read a phone book, or the Bible, apparently. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, However, aside from being tough, however, aside from liking concepts of Naruto and whatnot, a lot of his most iconic roles are a lot more, like, bombastic, so it was interesting hearing him play a character, like, who was a lot more stoic, like Kirei kind of was. And when we first meet Kirei, he's pretty much basically an empty shell, and he puts on this air of faith because, well, that's, like, the role he has to play. Uh, but, of course, through Gilgamesh's influence, he breaks out of that empty shell and grows into a full-fledged villain, finding joy in the torment of others. It's certainly not a typical character development, but Crispin Freeman handles that transition very well. And as Kirei becomes more emotional, so does Christmas' performance. And when Kirei, like, finally snaps in the last episode and just shows how truly insane he is, uh, Crispin Freeman just sells his newfound depravity really well, uh, while also keeping the ham, like, just reserved enough to still feel in character for Kirei, and I really dug that. And as for David Ernest, I'll be pretty honest. Uh, back when I first watched this up, I honestly kind of hated this performance. Like, I hated it so much, in fact, that for a while I was actually kind of annoyed whenever I saw people, like, just blindly singing the praises of this set as opposed to, like, say, uh, Tucker and Bunny, since they both kind of came out around the same time period, and I'm a little bit of a bigger fan of that one. Uh, having said it, re-watching the dub for this episode, I actually found a lot of newfound appreciation for the performance, and I kind of grew to like it, for the most part. Um... So the biggest problem I so the biggest problem I had I had with David's performance the first time I watched it is that it's kind of lacking an edge to me. 
like when it comes to being a commanding presence as opposed to like you know charisma like you guys were saying mm. um yeah so for me it was like mostly lacking in like so it was mostly lacking like authoritarian ends where he really feels like an authority figure that's, especially during Gilgamesh's intro that's probably what yeah. I was thinking of truth be told mm. yeah yeah, especially during Gilgamesh's introduction, and um, since I was really big on Toma Kazuseki's performance in the Japanese version, uh, that first performance really kind of—I mean, that first impression really kind of soured me on David's performance. Um, but while I found him kind of lacking in intimidation, I'm gonna disagree with Megan in that I actually thought he gave off a sense of natural charisma pretty well, mostly in the purposes of using it for, like, you know, seducing Kira and whatnot. And I feel like... And I, I feel just like, didn't get it. Yeah, because, like, I don't know, for me, like, I, I don't know, for me, all of David's best moments were just those scenes where he was suddenly manipulating Kiri onto that path of darkness. Oh, no! It's it's a good performance. I just don't see the... Cur- I don't sense it. Uh, so, I mean, okay, I mean, I guess that's fair. I'll just say that's kind of, like, where it worked for me the best. Uh, but, like... Any, uh, but anyway, like with uh, Wayward Rider, I feel like Christopher Freeman and David Ernest are honestly at their best when they're just playing off of each other. And uh, the great chemistry between these characters kind of helps to elevate their performances a bit. And you can easily see what draws Gilgamesh and Kiri and vice versa. Uh, story-wise, it's a bit of a doubter since these two honestly never get any kind of comeuppance for their evil deeds. No, not in this series! Right off. <clears throat> not in this series, and they quite literally ride off into the sunset, but hey, this is a prequel. And more importantly, it's a Genrubuchi show, so unless you're a villain or, you know, Weaver Rider, you're not really going to walk away happy here. <laughs> By the way, can I, can, I, can I literally read a conversation at one point that I had when I got to the end of the show? Was show I, 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 want, I was like, show Gilgamesh's dick, you cowards! Okay, Kyrie and Gilgamesh, just hate fuck already. To which Jet replied, don't be rude, Megan, they're clearly very committed to each other. Ugh. <laughs> 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 Alright, and with that, it is time to get to our final pair of the evening. And if you've made it this far in the episode, I'm so sorry. We're all going yes. to like hell. It's like at the three-hour mark. We're you're you're co- going to hell. You're, you're yeah, code in the comments is Excalibur. <laughs> yeah. No, your code in the comment is Viagra. No. <laughs> you know what? Type in either or. I don't care, but I'll be very disappointed if you type one. Okay. Disappoint Andrew twenty eighteen. Worm in the comments. Okay. Okay, that was good. Okay. Alright, um so we have our main leads, Kiritsugu Emia, and the saber of this story, Artoria Pendragon. Uh Kiritsugu is a hitman known as the Mage Killer who targets who targets magic users for a living. And despite his violent work, his ultimate desire for the Holy Grail is to bring about world peace. And as for Saber, strap in, kids, because this one's going to be a doozy. Okay, so Saber is based off of the Legend of King Arthur, obviously. Uh, the original King Arthur was born as the heir to the throne of Britain, but due to the current unrest going on at the time, he was hidden away by the mage Merlin, and his true identity was kept secret. And when Arthur's father died, Merlin used his magic to seal a sword in a stone, and that said, whosoever shall lift this sword shall become king. Many tried, but only Arthur was managed to be successful, and thus he was made king. As king, he built a base in Camelot and led his people in fighting about the Saxons who were invading the country. Uh, his most trusted knights were known as the Knights of the Round Table, 
And they did a variety of deeds from saving damsels to fighting giant monsters, as well as searching for the Holy Grail, which they believe can cure all sickness in the world. Unfortunately, civil war eventually broke out, and both Arthur and his nephew Mordred were fatally wounded. Arthur's body was sent to the island of Avalon, where he was healed by three maidens and was never seen again. And the story of King Arthur and Fate Lore goes uh, pretty differently. Uh, in fact, if I in fact if I were to actually try going over the the whole thing, we would quite literally be here for another hour. So I'm just going to do the highlights. The TLDR uh, could probably <laughs> just be: Guess what? Arthur's a girl. Yeah. Uh, so TLDR: This isn't a sausage fest. There's a clam bake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like in the original tale, Arturia Pendragon was born as the legitimate heir to the throne, but because she was born as a woman instead of a man, the king could not name her his successor, and she was sent away with Merlin to be raised as an ordinary knight. Now, Merlin, however, still believed that she was destined to rule, and when it came time to pull the sword from the stone, Merlin gave her a warning that if she became king, she would cease to be human. Arturia still felt it was her duty anyway, and pulled the sword, becoming king, and apparently ceasing to age. Um, she led her people through many battles alongside the Knights of the Round Table, and ruled while concealing her true gender. However, the more perfectly she ruled, the more everyone around her began to feel she didn't understand human emotions. Uh, this came back to bite her when Civil War broke out, and she was mortally wounded by her estranged son Mordred. I'm not going into that. Uh, and she was taken to the Isle of Avalon where she threw, her, where she threw away her sword Excalibur, and felt nothing but regretted her dying moments about how she ruled as a king. Uh, before her last breath, she wished that in exchange for becoming a heroic spirit, she could have another chance to seek out the girl and save her country. Alright. And, uh, yeah, I am genuinely amazed I was able to keep it, not sure. I'm impressed, good job. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, anyway, playing Saber, we have Kyrie Walgren, who you would know for such roles as Blue Rose and Tiger and Buddy, Saya and Diva in Blood Plus, <laughs> an M&A in Eureka 7, and Haruhu Haruhara in Fully Fully. Uh, Kiritsuko Emiya is played by one Matthew Mercer, whose other work includes Levi from Attack on Titan, Leorio from Hyper Chapter 2011, Trafgar Law in One Piece, and Jotaro Kujo from Jonas with our Adventure Status Crusaders. Also, I want to give a brief shout-out to Kirk Thornton, who played Kiritsuko's father in his backstory, because... Kirk Thornton was actually the original voice of Kiritsugu in the two thousand and six version of Fate Stay Look, if we're gonna give a sh there, if we're gonna give we... a shout out, we should also give a shout out to young Kiritsugu Emiya, played by Marianne Miller. Yes, yeah. who was fan fucking. Oh, she was great. Yeah, thumbs up. Yes, she was. Uh, fuck. Well, how do I start? Okay. Um, so let's start. Saber. Saber is noble. She is strong of will. She she holds herself high with authority and strength and honor. And then when you see the doubt in both her criticism from Ryder as well as the revelation of what her leadership may truly have done to drive Lancelot insane, you see her vulnerability, her doubts, and her fears. And you see all these different sides of Saber. But Saber herself is still really cool, really strong, really interesting, and god damn it, she looks good in the suit. Like, like, I, like I, 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 I like her fate stay night attire too. But 
she looks really cool in the suit. And I, like I said, I really do like the contrast between the ladies in suit and the lady in white who is uh, Iris Veal. Also, I really do love her relationship with Iris Veal. Almost much so that I would not mind if she helped prepare a modern transfer with her, if you will, so to speak. <clears throat> <laughs> That's someone else's job in this franchise. Yep. Yep, more on that later. Anyways, uh, but no, I really think Kari does a fantastic job bringing Saber to life and making her a believable, noble, powerful knight, but also somebody who, like, try who is full of fears and doubts about how they ruled and, like, whether they did the right thing or not, especially when it came to Lancelot. And I thought that was really interesting. Now, let's talk about... The failed hero of justice, Kiritsugu Emiya. Holy shit, Matthew Mercer. I forgot how much I really liked Matthew Mercer as Kiritsugu. And god damn it. Because like most of this, he's very cold and dead-eyed. But when he shows his fears, his you see him break on the boat. You see him crying the face of other defeat after he is broken, after his ideology is challenged and crushed, after he is forced to basically have an image of his wife and child as he is forced to kill them, knowing that he is being manipulated by the Grail. All these, all of this energy, just the way he carries himself as this cold, calculating hitman, but when you see the facades of the world and his ideals crumble before him, you see him break and tremble, and just him dying with so much regret. Kiritsugu is such a tragic, heroic figure, and it's fascinating, and I think Matthew Mercer, Matthew Mercer is really, really perfect for the kind of character that Kiritsugu Amiya was. And I was impressed. Alright. I've said my piece. Uh, oh gosh. Um, so, I think that Kari Walgren as Saber was something I wasn't used to hearing her as. Uh, because I'm really used to her being like Diva and Saya in Blood Plus. Like, that, that was my introduction to Kari Walgren. Um, and I loved her, and Kari Walgren is one of my favorite voice actresses of all time. Like, bar none. I, I love that woman. Mm -hmm. um, her performance as Saber was so beautiful and noble and just heartbreakingly tragic when she cried. And I loved every second of it, and it's so brilliant and just tragic, like, as a lot of the show is. And it's so just it's so warm though in its tragedy it's it's juxtaposed it's a it's the difference between somebody who cares too much and somebody who doesn't appear to care too much and that's why she works off of matthew mercer's uh kiritsugu so much because matthew mercer um appears as a man who is cold and heartless but yet cares more about the world than anybody else and he is willing to become until the very end, was willing to become a bad guy to, to ensure that peace. A lot like his servant, oddly enough. Um, I'm trying to find a way to work in an high noon joke, and I can't. Uh, right. just don't. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure already did that. God! Thanks! Thank you, J thank you, Jalen. Jalen, Jalen. Thank you, Jalen. You thanks, beautiful Jaylen. son of a bitch. That episode just aired yesterday. Anyways, 
Um, it's just, God, Matthew Mercer is so fucking good in anime. And it sucks that he doesn't do a ton of it anymore. He does, he does a couple um, of them still, but... He does, like, he does Attack on Titan and shit, but, um... Oh, God, it's just... The fuck, when he's crying on the boat, it's so good, and... When he he talks about holding his child for the first time, where he compares her to the weight of a gun. Yeah. And you're just like, fuck Mercer, twist the knife, why don't you, asshole? It's like, it says so much that that's really all he's ever known before then. And just, he goes out in, like, when, when... Karitsuko finally snaps after the grail has burned Fuyuki. And he picks up Mona Marshall, I mean Shiro Emiya. <laughs> Izzy, what are you doing down there? <laughs> uh, Simba! <laughs> fire in Fuyuki! Shiro's down there! Uh. Um, but no, just, they were both such beautiful performances, and I, I just... Not you're not as perfect as Lucian and uh, Jameson, but you're pretty you're pretty a good second place. Indeed. Uh, Rich. Yeah. Um. I like. I kind of like how tragically both Kari Walgren and Matthew Mercer play their respective characters. Like, Saber Artoria is basically. She's stoic and she tries she tries to be strong on the outside, but deep down she is brash and childish as hell. And and during the, the meeting of kings, she gets totally called out for it and she she gets mad that she can't defend herself, and that was just that was one of my favorite scenes for her. It's the idea that it reminds me of something from March comes in like a lion where it's like, it's so hard to hear, but why does she want to hear it? Yeah. And Matthew Mercer, uh, I, the, the boat and holding his child for the first time got to me, but also the riddle. The, oh, the when you have to oh, choose, yeah. there's a boat with 200 people and a boat with 300 people. And that's him talking to himself. That's the Grail using his voice. Yeah, that shit's creepy, oh, too. Oh, that's so creepy. Like, and that the fucked was up magnificent. And the fucked up part is that in the end, he chooses the 300 people. And in the end, the reality is he only saves 200. Yeah, because they keep dividing the boat up. Yeah, and the worst part is, and the worst part is when the ground tells him like, "Oh, like, like, oh, like, we already know how to save the world. We're just going to do what you've been doing all along." And it's like, just, oh man, we're just gonna kill half of humanity, basically. <laughs> oh, it's so fucked. We're gonna that that we're gonna Thanos this bitch. Like that moral dilemma was just, it was hard to watch, but it was so good. Speaking of hard to watch, remember when he fucking shoots the image of Ilya? Oh yeah, he like straight up gets like no mercy. No, it's like in the thing is it was the right thing to do in his mind is that he was going to be trapped by the Grail, 
but it's such a hard thing to watch. And the voice of his probably dead wife, who we will never see again, the last thing he sees of the image of his wife is cursing him. I curse you. Oh. Yeah. Also me. Also me. Shout out to the act. I don't want to say who. Okay, I kind of spoiled who played Sakura, so I don't want to spoil who plays Iris, uh, the daughter. Shout out to the actress who plays the daughter when she's talking about having the nightmare. Yeah. 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 And, like, I, I honestly can't wait to dive into uh, Unlimited Blade Works. Which, believe me, we spent this long at Fate Zero. We're gonna cover Unlimited Blade Works, don't worry. Like... <laughs> Hopefully with less child Hopefully, murder. but not guaranteed. Yeah. It... <laughs> Please let there be less child murder. But I, I like how on the outside they they play stoic roles, but ultimately the both of them are just so broken inside that they need each other in order to be complete, and it's like it's just really good. And I'm I'm gonna pass it on to Jet, because like we're going way over time. Okay. Um, so I'll start with Carrie Walgren since I don't have much to say other than she's great. Uh, Carrie Walgren is honestly one of the best voice actors in the, voice actresses in the industry, period. And um, she's handled a very wide variety of character types with total grace. Um, as far as anime was concerned, though, this was the first time I had ever seen her play like the role of, you know, nobility in a sense. Uh, but she really nailed it. She really gives off the sense of dignity that makes it so easy to understand why Saber was very respected throughout history as both the king and the knight. And uh, when that sense of pride gets threatened, Kyrie is like really able to convey those, those frustrations very well without losing that air of nobility that makes Saber so interesting. Uh, but I get it she wasn't that aspect though. Uh, the scene that of course really sold me was that moment where Saber discovers Berserker with Lancelot. And the way she broke from that revelation, like, really shook me, and it just reminded me of how great an actress Kyrie is. Ah, as for Matt Mercer, um, the reason I had brought up Kirk Thornton earlier was that back when the show was, uh, first coming out, he was actually who I wanted to play Kiritsugu, since I was, like, more familiar with Kirk Thornton, and, um, like, Ed, I had watched his Japanese version of Fate Zero, and I knew Kirk Thornton's voice was about as deep as, a uh, Rika Kamiyo's was, and, uh, Rika Kamiya was who played him in Japanese. Um, so when it first came out that Matt Mercer was playing him, I wasn't really sure how to feel because I wasn't very familiar with Matt Mercer back then. And his take on Kirituku actually sounded a lot younger than either of the others. So um, when it actually came time to listen to that performance, though, I was very impressed. Uh, he definitely gets across that very machine-like efficiency that makes up Kirituku's outward personality. While also sounding equally believable during the few moments we can see him lighten up a bit and be more vulnerable, like when he's playing with his daughter, I thought that seemed really cute. Or like those moments where he like confides in Irisville. Uh, but for as robotic as the front as he puts up though, Kiritsugo of course is a very troubled individual beneath the surface, and Matt Mercer gets across that aspect very well too. I uh, pretty much is that saying that that scene on the boat where <laughs> okay, where he had the, you know, lots of rocket launcher was probably the most emotive he ever had to be. And while that whole outburst only lasted, like, actually just a few seconds, uh, pretty much every ounce of Kiritsugu's agony just really came out in that moment. And just that feeling of despair over the decision he had to make was just, it came across beautifully. 
and it more or less sold me on Matt Mercer as an actor. And it's kind of interesting looking back. They like he was he's been around for a long while. He like, was the original first. Leon Kennedy from Resident Evil Four. He's been around for yes. like a decade and a half. Yeah he's, yeah, he's been around for a while. But like as far as like anime was concerned, this was like more or less the role that got him on the map. And it's uh, but it is just, it's interesting to think about. But it's also not hard to see why because he was really good at it. So yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, we can move on to final thoughts. We can move to th- because it's getting gonna... yep. Yeah, it's getting really late. late. I'll make my final thoughts really quick. Uh, Revisiting the show has been really interesting because I watched it a few years ago. I think in my freshman year of college, actually. And it's really interesting now that I have more of an understanding about fate lore. Now, and also an understanding of what came before and after this. I have a much clearer understanding of how this is from the beginning. You know the end. It's tragedy. There's so many complex deep characters, so many terrible, awful people who are also, like, multifaceted and really interesting. There's some great character moments. I love Wavern Rider. I love some of the fascinating stories and the struggles they tell. I actually, like, there's a couple, there's a couple of people in this dub that are just okay or decent, but there's a lot of really strong standout performances that really, really, you could see why this was such a dub that people held in such high regards. Like, it's not perfect. There's a couple of things here and there, but for the most part, six years later, this still holds up really nicely. And I really, really enjoyed revisiting it. Okay. Uh, Megan? Oh, God. Uh... As somebody who had never seen the show before this point, uh, I want to punch all these guys because I actually was legitimately upset. Like, a lot of material visually in the show did upset me. I make a lot of, like, jokes about it, but guys, I do not like watching little kids get killed on screen. Like, just, that's a yeah, fucking no agreed. for me. Like, that's just, that's just yeah. like a no. Like, I, I legitimately had no idea. I knew Gitarai was a sir, a caster. But I didn't know what series he was in, and I didn't know that they were going to go that far with you. Yeah, that's... That being said, that's the dub... That's and I, like, I apologize for not bringing any of that up to you. It's, it's fine, you can just buy me <laughs> plushies, honey. Um, that being said, I think the stub is fantastic. There's a couple of nitpicky things that I would say about this, uh, but... Honestly, I had a great time watching it. Uh, this is probably one of the best anime I've actually ever watched. <laughs> it was a it was a great tragedy anime, and the dub really holds up uh, six years later. Uh, okay, uh, yeah. So, as the guy who actually spent like three hundred dollars to own the bless series you. on Blu-ray, bless your dumb naive heart. <laughs> like. This is a really good experience, not just when I first bought it or the time or two I've watched it since, but, like, revisiting it now for for dub talk and all that, and, like, talking about things and discovering new parts of this that I never realized with you guys. Like, that was... This is a really cool experience. Like, every time you watch it, it the the picture gets a little clearer and it's like, it's just a really great show. And, and the dub just adds an element to this that it just, I I'm having trouble finding the words, but like 
the dub has a lot of complicated moving parts, and they they move for the most part in in harmony. And other than a few info dumpy moments at the beginning and middle of the show, like everything just kind of works. And it's it's probably become one of my favorite shows. And the dub is spectacular. So I I will pass it on to Jet because that's really all I have to say. Okay. Um, so while I had most, so while I had actually seen most of the deep version of Fate back in the day because I was weird, um, Fate Zero was more or less the show that sold me on Fate as a franchise. Even if part of me kind of feels the see for that because the rest of it hasn't quite matched up, but uh, that's a whole other story there. Uh, anyway, this is a very dark show and like very unforgiving in terms of execution, but it's also extremely compelling and composed of a cast of characters that are equal parts fascinating and cruel, while outside of Weaver it's kind of home more like fascinating and cool. Uh, the dub certainly played a part in helping me to revisit the show every now and again, and uh, well, like I said before, I think the later Fate dubs are a little bit stronger, and uh, this was certainly a good place to start breathing new life into the franchise, and Tony Oliver and all the actors involved played a really big part in making that happen. It's not like a totally perfect dub, and some parts of the ensemble are definitely better than others, but it all comes together to make for a very memorable experience, and it's very easy to understand why this dub is so celebrated all these years later. And with that, we're basically done, so is there anything you guys want to plug real quick? I am so sorry, this is like a three and a half hour episode. It's probably only like 310 or something like that, but at the very least, exceeding three hours. There's like a good like 20 minute chunk of just okay. me laughing. Uh, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter at Mangaman9000. You can find me on there. I do dub talk, as you might be aware. And I'm also on another podcast for Surreal Resolution, Podcast ONA, alongside my buddy Jet here. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Roots of Justice, where I mainly just, like, retweet cute animal pics and, like, sometimes talk anime stuff. Like, I'll, I show up on the, the Funimation Discord and forums every now and again. Um, I'm actually starting to make moves on that blog of mine, so hopefully, like, updates will be coming in the near future. So, cool. Cool. Uh, you can follow me at Queenier2, where I shitpost post pictures of my wonderful daughter Shinya, and do a bunch of other crazy whining and bullshit, and occasionally flirt with brutes <laughs> over here. Uh, you can also hang out with me on the Funimation Discord, Funimation Forums, yada yada yada. Okay, and as for me, you can follow me on Twitter, at Mega, where I will usually uh, be talking about anime or computers or some nonsense. Uh, you can also find me on the fan post where I occasionally do anime reviews this season doing My Hero Academia Season 3. I also have my own blog, Animation Infinity, where I sometimes do reviews and stuff. Um, and, um, like Andrew was saying, you can also occasionally find me on Podcast OA. And, uh, as for us, uh, we are the Dub Talk Podcast. You can find us on YouTube at Dub Talk Podcast. Uh, so if you want, you like, comment, subscribe. As well as you can also find us on Twitter, Twitch, Tumblr, and Instagram. And don't at forget to ring the notification bell down below. Brr, 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 brr.
Thank you. If you don't, every time you don't ring the notification bell, we kill one of Gigi's body pillows. <laughs> no I'm kidding. Okay, I thought that was gonna go. I thought that was gonna every turn into a caster joke for a second. I was getting very concerned. Yeah, yeah. No, oh God, no! I want to do that. Oh, every time you don't, every time you don't ring a bell, we make Hardy look at Cloud Aerith ship. <laughs> it's very sad. That's life. mean. Yeah, yeah. You guys also want to go do that. And he'll never sit through all of this, so he'll never Also, hear by that. the way, uh, if you would like to watch the dub of Fate Zero, you can find that over on Netflix and or Crunchyroll. Yes, yep. I'm ready to call it a night, hey. guys. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, yeah, and uh, with that, we're done. All right. So, uh, thank you for sticking around this long. You're probably crazy to have done that, but thank you. Let's see. Your uh, endurance is rewarded. Good night, everybody. Otaku on, my friends, and... What's a good fate thing to end this off on? Excalibur! <laughs>